Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before introducing my guest for this episode, once again, I want to offer an opportunity for real estate professionals ages 22 to 40 years old to join the community called the Iconic Journey in CRE, a membership group whose purpose is to learn about the income-producing real estate industry by connecting with other members, learning from curated content, tours, and live and online speakers and events. As a special incentive, on December 13th, the community is offering to members an online event with five DC area icons, four of whom have been podcast guests of mine, Matt Kelly, JBG Smith, Tom Bazzuto of Bazzuto Group, Gary Rappaport of the Rappaport Companies, Ray Ritchie of Boston Properties, and potentially Diane Hoskins of Gensler. This will be free to annual members and offered to others for a modest fee. To join the community, please write me at john at coenterprises.com, C-O-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S.com. I hope you can join me. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to introduce my guest today, Rob Ward, President and CEO of Skanska Development US, a division of Skanska, a Swedish construction and development firm. Rob began his career in hospitality, then transitioned to brokerage, subsequently business development in construction with Clark Construction Company, and then joined Skanska when they came to uh, Washington area to start a construction office about 20 years ago. He quickly moved into project work and was moved to Atlanta, where he spent time learning the business there. A development executive from Sweden came to the United States to set up a development division, and Rob was then hired to help start the new division, which he now runs. That division now has five offices nationally. You will learn about his background, his career trajectory, the unique nature of their internal financing of their projects, their strong emphasis on ESG, and attention to details on construction of things that you wouldn't normally notice. Although Rob is an American, he has fully adopted the philosophy of a Swedish employer on sustainable and quality development. Without further ado, here is Rob Ward. Rob, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Good morning. So start with what I usually talk about is you know, what your role is at, at Skanska USA Commercial Development. Sure. I title is president and, and CEO of Skanska USA Commercial Development, and, and my role is really to oversee our development operations here in the U.S. Um, we have offices in Boston, D.C., Houston, Seattle, and L.A. I lead our senior team. I 
lead our investment committee. And then I also sit on a couple other groups within the company in terms of with this role. One of them is a combination of the business unit presidents for commercial construction and civil construction, along with a, a gentleman who's the executive vice president who oversees both of those companies in the U.S. So the four of us get together periodically to kind of manage and, and oversee everything at the enterprise level in the U.S. and even shared services and all the things that we share between the companies. We manage that as a group as well. So I have a participation role there in addition to my job with overseeing the development company. You report up here in the States? Or I do not. Up to I, re- I report to a gentleman uh, named Klaus Larsen in, in Stockholm. And he's part of our GLT, which is called our, it's our global leadership team, our group leadership team, I should say, which is about six, seven people that oversee the the company globally. So I report directly to them. In the commercial development division, is that just in the U.S. or is that an international division? It's an international division. We have uh, commercial development in the Nordics, so Norway, Sweden, Finland, and then in Central Europe, we are in uh, Czech, Poland, Hungary, and Romania. Okay. And so that's our commercial development Europe group. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get into that in a little sure. bit more yeah. depth in a few minutes. Uh, Rob, tell me a little bit about your background and origins. Sure, sure. You know, I, I, I'd like to say I've grown up a little everywhere. I always tell people from ages 0 to 13, we moved once a year. My father was in the Air Force. Okay. So we lived uh, a number of places in the U.S. We lived in Europe. I lived in Germany for three or four years. We were stationed at Ramstein Air Force Base, mm-hmm. which you probably see on television quite a bit. It's a pretty big base there and a lot of activity in and out of there, serving the Middle East and other parts of the world. So it was an interesting way to grow up. You, you move really every year, which I think was actually a pretty... What did your dad do for the Air Force? He was an intel officer, and then he got out, and we, when he got out of the Air Force, we still moved for a few more years because he was doing basically the same thing in, in the private world as a government contractor. Specifically, I don't know. He was Everything he worked on was under top-secret clearances, and that was another interesting thing growing up. You know, He didn't know exactly what he was working on, and I remember the neighbors in almost every neighborhood we were in stopping over to tell us that you know the... I don't know if Secret Service or who the right people are had stopped by. Once a year, they would come by and interview the neighbors and the people around us as part of the re-upping his clearances. So they, Interesting. They, they, and they said, hey, they were by this week. Don't worry, we said good things, that type of thing. But yeah, mm-hmm. so I was kind of used to not knowing precisely what he did, but understanding that it was you know, around the area of, of defense and defense. How'd your mom deal with all this? Oh, she was great. She was great. And, and it wasn't that he was gone for any extended periods. I mean, he worked... A lot. He had a pretty strong work ethic, and I think that's something I inherited there. But no, my mom was great with that. She was. She did not work outside the home when we were very young, and then probably from third grade on, she did. She was an orthodontic assistant for a while, and then several years, and then kind of moved into retail and was a manager of some women's stores, and ultimately became a personal fashion advisor at Lord and Taylor. I remember she had her own office there, and uh, clients that would come in, and it, it was it was good for me. I always had pretty decent clothes in high school, so. So where did you go to high school? Then? I went to high school at uh, Chantilly High School here. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, so the high school was good. I, I would say I was a good student. I would not say I was a great student. One thing that caught my attention kind of ties into what we might talk about today here was the we had a vocational wing at Chantilly. They did you know auto repair and HVAC, but they also had a real estate program there. So I took real estate classes in high school, and I got my license when I was 18 years old, which was as soon as you could get it. So I was maybe one of the few kids in high school with a business card and a briefcase, right? Um, And I worked with some residential realtors, just kind of effectively carrying their briefcases and doing open houses. What inspired you? You know, I just thought it was an interesting opportunity. 
you know, I, I saw all the other things. I didn't really know what I wanted to do career-wise. And I thought, you know, versus some of the other classes you could take, they gave you a block where you could take something creative, artistic as almost an elective. And the vocational wing was sort of under that that category. And so I thought, oh, let's give it a shot. And I really enjoyed it. Tell me what years that was. Just out of curiosity. That was in the late 80s. That would have been 88. Oh. Yeah. No wonder real estate interest. Yeah. Northern Virginia at that time was on fire. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So much going on. Exactly, exactly. So I worked for Shannon and Lux, and yes. and then I, when I went off to college, I sort of I obviously kept my license for a long time, and I would work in the summer times, and you know, it really wasn't a, a full blown uh, realtor in terms of having my own practice, but I worked with other groups and other realtors and helped them with their work and made a few dollars. Which is good. Yeah, two of my former podcast guests, Bob Kettler mm-hmm. and John Peterson. Yeah, pretty active in Northern Virginia at that time. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, yeah it was an interesting time. It was. So then you uh, decided to go on to uh, college at uh, Virginia Tech? Yes, I did. Yeah, Virginia Tech was great. I was not an engineer. But, you know, it's funny. My father said, you should really be an engineer. I said, yeah, okay. And I looked into it. I just didn't think it was for me. So I was right. much more of a business and marketing guy. I actually spent a fair amount of time. I got interested in the communications school there, too. Not for sort of broadcast, but more around you know business communications and messaging and kind of a tie-in with marketing. And that was actually a really interesting part of the curriculum down there, the one I probably appreciated the most. So Virginia Tech was, was great. Yeah, but not an engineer. I Did you things. explore anything in real estate when you were there or not? You know, there, I, I really didn't. And there really wasn't a lot on that front. You know, so now there is a great real estate program down there, as, as you may know. I, I was on the board of that program for a couple of years. I still serve in kind of an emeritus board member role for the real estate program, but it's a fantastic program. It's one of the few undergrad real estate programs in the country. And it's a really legitimate multidisciplinary program between, you know, business, construction, architecture, even engineering, all these different schools kind of come together. And so you can have it as a single or a double major and be a second thing that you do. But I only wish it was there when I was in school, because I mean, the people that are supporting that program and the curriculum is outstanding. I mean, the, the young, young, kids, I want to say kids, the young people that come out of those programs will be so much further along as it relates to our industry than, than most people coming out of school today, even without an MBA. That's great. So after that, what was your thought process? So I worked summers during college. The last couple summers, I worked out at a Lansdowne Resort in the golf operation. And so when I graduated, they offered me a job in hospitality. So I was a, oh, really? a guest services manager. Very quickly, I'm not sure if they took a close look at my age, but they made me the director of housekeeping, which is a pretty big operation. I mean, and I was maybe 22, 23 years old. How many rooms did that hotel have? 305. Yeah. And I had, I had 65 housekeepers, about probably 80% of which did not speak. I had some Spanish. And, and that it was, it was enough, but that was a pretty interesting experience. I mean, you're ordering every element that the, the whole resort's going to need for the next couple of months and understanding, you know, staff. And I said, it was, it was a really good experience. It's not a job I wanted to do long-term. The company managed the property. It was benchmark hospitality. Oh, benchmark, sure. Yeah, back then. So, so I had that. And then after that, they made me night manager for the whole property. Also at a pretty young age. Another interesting experience. I had security and just about anything that would happen from... 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. was under my watch. So that was, uh, you could write a book about some of the things you might see in, in that uh, time frame. But it was interesting. Then the housekeeping uh, bit taught me a lot about detail. And, uh, you know, even my team here knows 
I walk into a building, I've got a pretty discerning eye for, for things being right. I see every detail. If there's something on the floor, if there's a mark on the wall, I'm going to pick it out and have a little chat with our, our property manager. So that's one thing I learned. Interesting. There. And, and also working with the staff. I mean, you know, the, I had uh, what I realized pretty quickly is I would help a few people out there, especially some of the ones, folks that couldn't speak English. They would have challenges with school and their kids and translating things. And so mm-hmm. I would help out with a few things because they trusted me. And then I realized that, you know, the shift ended at 3 o'clock or 3.30 and I'd look and I'd have 10 or 15 people outside my door. And, and we, I would just rotate people through, but I would call their schools on their behalf and respond, help them respond to notes from their teachers and things like that. You know, vaccinations actually back then, they didn't understand what they needed to do with some of the kids. And so I was sort of a, like a, a guidance counselor of sorts there helping. But it was good, a good experience. And I think I felt some loyalty with the team and I, I had a good operation there. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the hospitality sector, um, and we'll get into this maybe a bit later, sure. but I think all of real estate is moving in that direction if, if they want to succeed. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And I, I think there's a lot of things that I learned even then and I see now that are very applicable. I mean, you walk into different buildings and the, you know, the overall feeling you get, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this in terms of you know, strategy in our building, but we talked a lot about user experience and, and really, you know, finding that touch point between the asset and the people that are in it and, and really making that connection in a good way. It kind of ties into design thinking sure. and hospitality is a big, big part of that now. Seems to be. Yeah. So how long did you stay at Benchmark? It was just for a couple of years. Like, you know, I, I, I probably two, three years. I think I, I enjoyed it. It was an interesting opportunity. It was a good experience. I really did learn a lot, and I was fortunate to be thrown into the deep end and, and experience a lot of things, sort of whether I liked it or not. But looking back, it was valuable. That said, I, I still felt like real estate was probably the place I wanted to be. And I met a broker through a, through a friend. Actually, my now brother-in-law introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Pete Larson. I don't know if you yes. ever knew Pete, right? Pete is oh, a yeah. character in this in this business. Wonderful guy. Uh, I met Pete and we had a couple of good conversations. And he, you know, to his credit, I look back, he taught me a lot. But he, you know, he said, look, if you really want to get in this business, he said, I'll hire you right now and make the research or no, no problem. He said, but go talk to some other people. And so he set up meetings with me and Tom Massey and Pat Cassidy, right? And all Amazing our, guys. Right? And so I had an appointment with each of them. I, at the time, I didn't know who they were or, or you know, have a sense of you know, how successful or important they were in, in our world here. Both meetings were great. Both of them gave me a, a real sort of unvarnished view of the business, especially brokerage. Both also, before I left, said, I know Pete sent you over here, but if it doesn't work out, come back and see me. I have a job for you. So which was kind. And I, I appreciate it. They both gave me some good insights. So I did go back and work for Pete for a short time. I mean, I was still with the company, but... Pete was running the Advantis office at the time. I was a market researcher, basically doing a little bit of brokerage and smaller deals and helping more senior folks with that and you know, really just kind of soaking it all in. And then you know, they acquired Morris McNair. So Bruce McNair and Bill Morris came over and then Bill ended up running the office. So he became my boss for a while and I was working for him and Bruce. Yeah, pretty, pretty small world. In fact, the, the HFF, now JLL guys, um, Jim Pot, uh, Deck Potts and Jim Meisel were over there. And I worked for those guys a little bit too. So, and that's, you know, God, almost 30 years ago, 25, 25 years ago. So, uh, small world, but I, I learned quite a bit in that and enjoyed working with all those and Pete included. And he's really the one that kind of got me in the door there. And I've learned a bunch, very, very meticulous group, a lot of detail, underwriting and work, things I didn't realize maybe would go into, you know, lease analysis and 
So you've got to understand the office business there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Both in terms of small investment sales that, you know, Deck and Jim were doing and a lot of leasing both on tenant and, and landlord side. You know, at that time, people weren't quite as segregated into one category or the other. We did a little bit of both, and, you know, and got to learn how to use ProCalc back then and some of those things. One of my jobs that I think of today, and I try to tell some of our younger employees this, it was we talked about CoStar. It's my job to get the CoStar package every week and take the five and a quarter inch floppy disk and load it in so we'd have all the newest CoStar information uh-huh. for the week. Sure. Yeah. Right? Different Good time. Old days. Yeah. Well, when I started in the business, we were using Black Sky. Yeah. Yeah. No, before I, I remember Black Sky. Even wrote his, uh, his paper about, yeah. about it. Yeah, we had. I mean, I remember the black sky that we had that first, and then then we were getting this floppy disk and trying to figure out what to do with it and convince people that there was something valuable in there beyond black sky. It's amazing how much technology. <laughs> the black sky is such a good call too, because I remember people, you know, one of our senior broker just throwing it on my desk and saying, "You need to know everything that's in there." Mm-hmm. And it's like a phone book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well. Before Black Sky, that was your uh, director, was the phone book. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how you find clients. Seriously. That's how you find clients. Exactly. If you're a tenant leasing guy. So you then moved into the construction business. I what, did. What, how did that evolve? I did. You know, it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was an interesting thing. I, I, I knew ultimately that while I was really enjoyed real estate and I was, I was liking what I did with Advantis and, and that, I, I didn't see myself in the brokerage side of the business long term. And I really liked the idea of development. And I was working with some developers there, obviously helping you know, lease their buildings and, and you know put some um, deals together with land and things like that. So I thought that was really the, hopefully the final destination for me. And it was interesting. I had a colleague who was working with me at um, Advantis. And he, at the time, was inter- he was kind of a partner of mine. We were you know working together on a few things. And he was interviewing for a role at Clark. And it was a business development role, and he told me about it. It really sounded pretty interesting. They wanted someone with real estate background, someone who knew the development market to really help kind of work and be a real partner to developers and, and bring the construction business to developers. I said, well, it sounds like a great job. So he went through the process. They offered him the role, and he, he said, okay, I, I'm going to take it, but I need a little time to you know, clean up my book of business. And so they gave him a little time, and they asked for a little more time. And at this point, he had basically resigned, but they just weren't letting him go. And they said, you know, what's it going to take to keep you? And so he, he relented and, and stayed. And, but it was after probably, I'm going to say, four or six-week period. He kind of dragged this out, and they were calling. And, and even he was, you know, a friend. He was kind of keeping me in the loop. And finally, he said, you know, I just think this is maybe better for me and my family to stay here. And they've offered me. I'm like, great. So I was thinking, that job really sounds interesting. And I'd love to know more about construction. You know, and I think it's an important part of my path in terms of development. So I just called Bill Calhoun, who was the number two guy, I think, at the time, and said, look, I, I know what just happened yesterday, and I might be your guy. And he said, can you come in today or tomorrow? And I came in you know, the next morning. I interviewed for probably eight hours. I mean, it was like they just took me around the building, basically. And the next day, they offered me the job. Because they didn't want to go back to the wow. drawing board, and it was a good fit, and we I connected really well with people, so that's kind of how it happened. Out of curiosity, did you meet Gail Rosenthal when you were there? Yes, yes, and I worked probably most closely with like you know Ken Carlson and Barry DePaul. Actually, mm-hmm. Ken came on after I was there for a little while. Barry DePaul and Brian App and Bill Talbert. I mean, I was you know Bill Talbert, Bill Calhoun, Brian App, and there was me and Steve Trezella. 
It was an interesting group back then, but a great company. I mean, I, and I learned a bunch about was, construction business. Was this before, when was Omni Construction and... Uh, so it was right after the, the, the Hyman and Omni kind of merged merger. into Clark. Okay. But it was very, very fresh. And you could, you know, I, I could at least tell pretty quickly who was, you know, So did from they, each take, they take the management teams and merge them together? They is did. that what they did? They did, yeah. And one, as I recall, and correct me if I'm wrong, one, Hyman was a union shop primarily, and, and it was D.C.-based, mm-hmm. and Omni was in the suburbs, more like North, Northern Virginia is where I saw their signs yeah. most. I believe that's the case, and I think it was predominantly sort of union, non-union. Right. The ability to do, do some different work and support different clients, but that predated me a little bit, but I was obviously aware of that, mm-hmm. that history coming in, but it was 100% Clark when I was there. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. so... Great company today. I mean, I know Robbie Moser is doing a fantastic job at running that company. And I, I really did learn quite a bit. I mean, they, there's so many different programs in terms of pre-construction and, you know, you're out on site, you're learning for concrete. I mean, I, I really got a, a so very fast... So you were an fast, for that? I was. I was. So how did you learn the construction business per se? Or did you yeah, I mean, it, it was a little trial by fire, but I mean, there were some good senior folks. I mean, they, they would, you know, I was paired up with some different project executives and, and then working closely with Barry DePaul, who was just, you know, fantastic. And then he hired Ken Carlson. He came over and he and I worked really closely together. And then Brian Flanagan. And, you know, I just soaked it all in. But there was some pretty good formal training there, too. So the kind of combination of each. But my job was to, you know, lead the business development efforts on, you know, a fair amount of healthcare and some uh, higher education. So I think Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland, and then some developer work. Mm-hmm. You know, I would go out and meet with different developers. And, you know, the goal was to come back with a roll of drawings under my arms so we could start pricing. And, and uh, it worked well. Architect and, and relationships as well, or was it just developers mostly? Uh, so architect relationships. I mean, you know, when you're a business developer in, in the construction business, it's, you know, you need to have a really good sense of everybody out there. And the architects are a great place to, to have and build relationships because you know what's on the boards, because then you know what's kind of maybe coming down the pipe. Exactly. So they were a real good source for your pipeline. So at Clark, you just did that. You didn't take on a project or anything like that. I did not. I did not. I did not. So I worked, you know, there were some projects where you might be a little more involved after, but but I was not running a project day to day as a project manager now. So you were there how long? Just Clark. a couple of years, just and a then, couple of years at Clark. And I, I really liked Clark, you know, never had any issues there, but there was a gentleman who was running and had just recently started the Skanska office in DC here, his name's Dave Miller. And Dave had come down here from Bluebell, Pennsylvania, which was, uh, there was a, Skanska actually was called Barkley White then, probably clear that up. So Skanska grew in the US via acquisition regional firms. So they bought uh, a number of firms, started with a B by the way, they bought Beers Construction out of Atlanta, was pretty at that time pretty analogous to Clark. They were probably a one to two billion dollar a year operation back. They acquired Beers. They acquired Barkley White out of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Sordoni Construction, which was a big one out of New York and New Jersey. A Beacon, the construction half of Beacon out of Boston. Oh, sure. Beacon Capital. They bought right. the, We acquired the construction arm there. Etkin out of Detroit and Denver, and then Baugh out of uh, uh, Seattle and Portland. And then there's one small one in Texas called BFW. So. They, they acquired all these regional firms and then, you know, they started out with each firm being sort of two branded. So it was Sordoni Skanska and Barkley White Skanska. And, you know, so they had kind of the parent Skanska in there. And then, and then I think it was in shortly, right after I started, they very quickly went or to just Skanska. And that was really a pretty big cultural move to, to really put all these companies under one umbrella, one way of accounting, you know, really streamline all that. 
So it was an interesting time. Your business going. development for Stan's goodness. I was initially. So you know, Dave Miller pulled me aside after a while. I think it was like a Mayop meeting or something here in town, some kind of meeting here in DC, and he pulled me aside and introduced himself and. He said, listen, he said, for the last year, you've basically kicked our butt on every deal. He's like, why don't you come work for me and, and, and see if you can help us? And so, uh, and so we had a good conversation. It was exciting to me because it was a little more entrepreneurial feel. And at the time, there was maybe four employees here in D.C. And he had come down from Pennsylvania. And there's a few people that have come down from New Jersey that were going to work. They had a reasonable book of business. They had a Navy Mac contract, which was an IDIQ you know, sort of three groups in there and every job came up would go to one of the three. So it was enough to sort of pay the bills. But, you know, it was intriguing because you had this 800-pound gorilla behind you. And so uh, to me, it was exciting to take on a little more entrepreneurial role and see if we could make that work. So I took that job and that was a little bit of everything. I mean, mostly business development, but I mean, I was managing the teams, managing the office. There was a little bit of HR. There was, you know, some small project management if things came up. I mean, you did kind of chief cook and bottle washer to some extent for a time there. But again, really great learning experience. Did you learn how to price jobs at that point? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I was in the bid room, you know, I had, you know, one, you know, area, one of the, one of the disciplines, one of the categories. Sure. I mean, everyone was all hands on deck then. And it was kind of interesting because I remember looking around the bid room sometimes and thinking, you know, this is a really big company, but there's only a few of us in here chasing some pretty big jobs. So, but, you know, fast forward, we, we won quite a bit of work and really built the operation up in a good way. And then, then the opportunity in maybe 2004 or five came up. Atlanta was a much bigger operation for us. And like I said, that had been the old beers headquarters. So big, big operation down there. A few people were cycling out that were on earnouts and things like that. And so they're making a few changes in the leadership team, most notably, they brought a guy in from New York to run all of Atlanta, but they were missing the VP of business development. And they had what they call account managers, which are the leaders of, of the different, you know, they're beyond project execs. They kind of run their almost their own book of business to some extent in a very good way and time with different clients. They could not really align around a business developer. So someone that said, would you consider going down there? And there was one, there was one gentleman down there that I worked with a fair amount because he was pursuing government work and I helped him you know, chase jobs at Fort Detrick and other things here in DC, Census Bureau headquarters, you know, was a job that we won with me up here and supporting some of the Atlanta guys. So I came down and met with them and, you know, we all just got along really well. And the, you know, I got a call the next day and I said, you're the only person that has met all of them and they all either like or don't hate, you know, and I was like, okay, that's a kind sentiment. They said, you have to come down here. We can't find anyone that can work with all these people and, and make everybody comfortable. So I moved down there. It was a pretty good promotion. So that was an interesting little move, whole different market. You know, you really had to build new relationships and build a marketing operation, a few other things, but it was great. I was part of the leadership team of the office there and, you know, cleaning up some old things and working on some new things. And so what was kind of the criteria for your business at the time? I mean, were you just purely office? Was it right. purely... So class A buildings in, in Atlanta was, you know, we had done, you know, and, and if you look back to the history of Skanska and beers in Atlanta, I mean, it really a lot of the skyline, you know, 191 Peachtree, some of the big, big SunTrust Tower I and mean, some of the really big iconic buildings on that skyline were, were buildings that we built. You know, that business in Atlanta, if you, and as you know, I'm sure well, the Atlanta market's interesting when it comes to private development, especially back then in the early 2000s, it was a little more. Cowboy is almost the term I want to use. I mean, you know, they would build spec into 18% vacancy because the developer knew 
had a buddy at the bank who would give him a loan, right? And you know, if you ever had a man in full, that was, was pretty just real. Refer that book. That was pretty real. Yeah, you know, and and so that was pretty hard to get your head around in terms of comfort with the real estate market there at the time. So when the developers were building, we were building for developers, but there was plenty of times when they weren't. So we actually did quite a bit of healthcare and a lot of higher ed. And so one of the things that Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech for sure, and we still do a lot of work for Georgia Tech. But we went for not for not doing a lot of higher ed when I was there. We made that kind of a mission to being one of the largest. At one point, we were the largest higher ed builder in the state. So um, the Georgia system um, is pretty big. They have a lot of schools and they were investing quite a bit of money. They have the Hope Scholarship down there. So they invest all the lottery funds into higher education. So there's a lot of small colleges and universities in the Georgia state system that are outstanding and they put really good money and build great facilities. So Atlanta, you were there for how long? What did you do? What did you end up doing there? So Atlanta, I, I was there for... About three years, and I honestly expected that I would stay in Atlanta. My wife and I really enjoyed it down there. Very comfortable. We enjoyed the you know the people and and you know our lifestyle, and that was great. But then Skanska, you know, decided they were going to explore commercial development in the U.S. And so it was a gentleman by the name of Nico Pedersen who came in from Gothenburg, Sweden. Nico was the managing director of Gothenburg, and they sent him here to kind of meet a few people and tour the country, and you know sort of toe in the water. Could we do development here? And so he had a kind of a sponsor who was one of the construction execs and the gentleman named George Fadul. And they toured around, just met people in different offices, but they called and said, we're going to come to Atlanta. We understand you have some real estate background. And, you know, a couple of people have mentioned your name as somebody that, you know, might be good for me to talk to. Basically. I said, sure. So we came in and we talked a lot about, you know, real estate and leasing and the markets and developers and, you know, what's working and what's not and what markets are interesting out there. And, you know, at the time there was a little bit of a a bend towards maybe medical office because we did a lot of higher, or excuse me, a lot of hospital work, medical work. So there was some thought about, you know, some adjacent medical office building and that kind of thing. And we had a good conversation for a few hours. And then the next morning he said, yeah, how about if you just come work for me and we're going to try to start this business? Wow. That's kind of a, you know, pretty big jump after a short call, but I said, you know, let's talk a little bit more. And the time I, you know, it, a little bit like when I started with Skanska, it was another entrepreneurial opportunity, but not, but with a pretty good safety net, right? You've still got the, the 800 pound gorilla behind you, so to speak. So I said, sure. So I did it and I was based in Atlanta, commuting to New York. We hired a couple people, but we only had three or four at that time. I stopped you sure. just for a moment. Yeah. Can I ask you, in your conversation with him, did you t- express an interest in development? Oh, was for that, sure. Was that a career path that yeah, you for expressed sure. to them? So they knew that you were interested. For sure. They, they knew I was interested, and they knew that you know I was, I was working on things in Atlanta with developers and even trying to form partnerships You know where we might seed some money, or we might yes. have, you know what I mean, to help deals happen. Did that here. Exactly. Where they would say, okay, to get the business, we'll give you a guarantee of completion and we will right. uh, maybe help you with your with your guarantees right. that you have to provide on the repayment. Exactly. Exactly. And we'll take a, maybe a small, you know, interest in, in the real estate yep. to do that. Yep. So I was literally trying to put some deals like that together because I saw a disconnect where I saw developers that I thought had a really good opportunity. I mean, you know, in a couple of cases, they were going to build medical office buildings, which we build anyway. 
and they were going to do it on a property, you know, adjacent to a hospital where we're building for the hospital and had relationships with the hospital. I mean, there were so many things that really made sense for us to be part of that, at least as a builder, but I thought it could make sense as a developer. So there was some, I think it was pretty clear that I had a genuine interest in trying to work with work and development and put those deals together. And my vision was not knowing that Skanska would ever bring this development on to the U.S. was to try to create something a little more along the lines of what Clark had, maybe a step higher to kind of differentiate ourselves because we had a strong balance sheet and we had the, the right people to do that. And I could probably put one or two people under me and you know put a little group together. So that was kind of where I was trending, at least in my own mind. And then this came along. And so you know the timing was great. They thought I was the right person for the job. And then they brought in the gentleman who's running uh, commercial development Central Europe with his Swede. They moved him and his family over and another Swede to come over as CFO to really keep the, the platform and, and, you know, connection to Sweden in place. And mm-hmm. so, you know, four or five of us traveled the country. We looked at a bunch of different markets, wrote a business plan. We settled on Boston, D.C. and Houston as our initial three with Seattle as the player to be named later. We liked the idea of Seattle at that time. This is back in 08, but we weren't crazy about trying to service West Coast and East Coast when we were just launching. So we're like, let's just kind of start East Coast. We'll go as far as Houston and then we'll get to the... So Seattle opened a couple years later and uh, I started running DC. That was the, you know, we selected DC. This was really home for me anyway. So, you know, when it was time to start, they said, you know, where do you want to go? And you can start that office. And I said, let's go with DC. I probably know that market better than any. Having, having you know worked here as a broker and, and a lot of past years. So I came and started this office. and that Was, was Atlanta not as good a market at that time? It was not. It was yeah. not. It, it was really hard to make the case for Atlanta. And I think, you know, our colleagues in Atlanta were had high hopes for it. I mean, in some respects, I did because I thought, well, this is great if I could, you know, grow on what I'm doing. I had a lot of good developer relationships there. And I thought that could be a, a good plan, but it just didn't, it just didn't pass the so What test year was this? It's 2008 when we were saying right before right, right before the yeah the Bear Stearns and all right. that kind of stuff. But that was like October of that year, right? So you kicked an office off in July. Wow, four months before Lehman Brothers. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it was interesting because and at that time it was really just me here in town, kind of working out of the construction office and we have an infrastructure development group at the time that does some work with civil working out of their office. It was kind of me in a briefcase going around town, you know, meeting, reconnecting with different people. And, you know, a lot of people like, I don't know, this is not a great time to start a business. I mean, you know, the response from some was great and from some was not so great and that's fine. But it actually turned out to be a very good time for us to start. I mean, easy to say now, but at the time, you know, especially after Lehman and everything, I mean, everything kind of stopped. I mean, nobody was funding everything, anything. I mean, there's a lot of distressed product and that type of thing. And, you know, here we had the mission to start something and we had a good balance sheet and and money to invest. And so, you know, the first deal we found, it was, and I think it was just me and one other person, Mark Johnson, who's who's still with us here as a VP here. He was my first hire. And then Mark Carroll, who you probably know, Mark runs the DC office now. Those were the first two gentlemen I hired here. So it was three of us. You know, I, we stumbled across the site at 10th and G. And Monty Hoffman had it. And there was a church component there, yes. which is still there. And, you know, they had excavated. And then, you know, all the sort of money went away. And you know, we had some good conversations with Monty. And then, you know, this is the church. And, 
you know, little by little, we were, took a while, but we worked our way into that relationship and looked like we were a good fit. And so that was the first proposed deal here in the U.S., first proposed investment. And Almaty was residential developer. Correct. Course. So was this envisioned as a residential deal initially? So originally it was envisioned as a residential deal. It was going to be condos on top of the church. One of the challenges with it at the time was that the church had a, had a service, a kitchen service for serving the homeless food. And so there was, you know, Monty had a plan to sort of work around and over that with the condos. I don't know that that impacted his deal necessarily. I think it was more, you know, the recession that, that kicked in that just kept the funding from going forward. They tried to convert it to office to take it forward. And that's really when we came in. And so we, you know, we acquired the site. Monty and the team still stayed in place and, and, and had a role and Paul Maceta and you know, he was great. So they stayed in, in an important role, but we were the sole owner there mm-hmm. along with the church. I and mean, it was a good partnership all the way around, all, all three. We did more work on the building and, and really converted into, you know, more of an office building. We did a lot of structural redesign, expanded the floor plates a little bit, took a lot of columns out of it because it, it really was kind of a resi building that was just tweaked a little bit and had some pretty unique elements in the floor plate. And so you know, then we're off and running, you know, late in 09 and we're going to go spec. And, you know, it was a pretty interesting deal because I'm presenting to Sweden, you know, this first investment was probably a million dollars cash. And, you know, it's looking around and the world was not a you know, super place then. But I said, look, yeah, you know, this is a great deal. I think we've really redesigned the building in a good way that's different than anything around it. And I think we're going to be successful here. And I said, the reality is we're, you know, we're five blocks from the White House. I said, we've got an amazing corner here. Every possible thing you could ask for, retail, amenities, metro, it's all right here. If this doesn't work in three or four years, we probably shouldn't be in this business, and I probably won't be working here anymore. <laughs> so you knew that was a gamble. Yeah. And, and, and I remember everyone was a little aghast. Like, you know, that's, you know, it was, I was learning to work with the Swedes. That's not sort of the way you approach things, but it was also a very American way of approaching. But I was being honest. I said, if this doesn't work, we probably... If we can't make this work, we probably don't want to be here. And I know I probably won't be here. So, and they said, okay. And so they, they authorized the funding and we, we started at spec. We delivered it 84%, 85% least and sold it right away because we needed to really kind of prove the whole model. Mm-hmm. Did much better than we ever could have imagined on it. I mean, it was a, a big, you know, I mean, the numbers are public. I think it was a $139 million sales on that. The business strategy initially for development was merchant bill. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that probably plays into your construction business to some extent. And that's, you know, you would get construction and, you know, turn churn. You're, you're obviously an income producing right. company. Right. So the thought process is not long-term hold with development. Right. Generally speaking, so I think that's always been the platform in Europe and the Nordics. To some extent, that's what we started with here. And it was a little bit, you're correct, John, it was a little bit in terms of term of construction, but but really it was a matter of, you know, 100% funding of the deals. Yeah, you can click off whatever your your return is year in, year out. But you, at that point, you're really better to recap the building with, you know, lower cost debt and redeploy that capital. And instead of recapping, it was just redeploy the capital because the way the deals were working, you know, that $80 million investment redeployed could be, you know, two buildings in Central Europe that can make a much bigger return than the 
7%, you might be clicking off so here. So you had a manufacturing mindset as opposed to a long-term investment right. mindset. Right. So certainly when we started, I, right. I think in the U.S., that's changed a bit for a number of reasons. One, I mean, the U.S. market is very different than, than Sweden and, and Central Europe. You know, we see a lot more pre-leasing over there. The size and scale of those deals tends to be a lot smaller than what we do here. And so it was not unusual not only to have a building you know, designed and start construction, but for over there, for it, but for it to be pre-leased and, and even pre-sold with a forward sale. And, and so, I mean, there was a very efficient movement of capital, not every time, but I mean, generally, you know, they were seeing pretty close to full or, or stabilized by the time they deliver. Is that more finish. user deals than investor deals then as far as sales? Yes. So well, that's no, yeah, it, it was a mix, you know, it was uh, a mix. yeah, it was a mix. You, you definitely had investors that were, you know, willing to, to put forward, you know, commitments in place there. So that was kind of the, that's the model that moved over here, but that's really not the way it works here by and large. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would love to be able to say every deal that we deliver is going to be hundred percent leased when we deliver it. The reality is, I mean, we've had some very good success along those lines, but the reality is it tends to take a little bit longer. And then, you know, we have some larger assets that we've, you know, put a lot of time and investment in and have elected to hold for longer periods. So, you know, now we look at it case by case and, and we look at each deal and say, what's the right thing for that asset? One of the things we've started to do in the past few years is to, instead of selling 100%, sell, you know, maybe divest 90% or 85%. So we kept 10% of Bank of America Tower in Houston, for example, and held on to that for a few years. And then did that interest to Beacon and, and Allianz through the, the original buyer. We did that for a couple of reasons. One, you know, to stay in some of these deals because we don't always want to let them go and we see them continue to grow in value. And then two, you know, the, the, the core, and I really think the core of our success is building really, really good buildings and really looking to differentiate our buildings. And so, I mean, if you go back to 10th and G, I mean, right out of the box, we made a lot of meaningful changes in that building and brought a lot of different people to the table early to help us redesign the building. Structurally, you know, we went from, I want to say, 30, 32 columns on the floor. You know, we re redesigned for post-tension and got it down to 21 columns and moved them around a little bit, created almost nine-foot you know, clear ceiling height, which was, you know, what people wanted, but not easy to do, as you know, in Washington, D.C. We were competing then against older buildings, you know, and think of what's a, around a three, four block radius of 10th and G. And you look at the floor plates and, you know, an older cast in place building. We looked at one building where a tenant was coming from and, and they were at 52 columns on the same floor plate. So the efficiencies were exponential. And every deal we did in 10th and G, we had, and actually every, almost every deal since then, we've had tenants come in and pay more per square foot than they were paying before. You know, take less square footage than they had before and accommodate the same number of people, maybe even more people. So, you know, the concept of efficiency really, uh, really played out in a good way for us there in the differentiation of that building. We did a really nice rooftop terrace. And is this and a European concept or talk about that? Well, you know, some of it is in, in terms of, you know, amenities and fitness and, and things like that. That was really us just bringing a lot of people together and putting them at a table and saying, what can we do differently here? Let's look at every building around us that we might compete with new and old, and how do we do something better? And that's really kind of where we start some of these conversations. And, you know, in 2008, that's where we started the conversation. So, and, and that played out very, very well. So, you Is know. Is that with the architects that you worked with at the time or what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's only the architects. That was the group that was on that building was um, Cunningham Quill, 
and there was another group that worked with the church. But I think we brought in a different structural group just for peer review and really said, okay, let's, you know, throw everything on the table and, you know, all bets are off, sort of safe zone. What what can we do differently here? What can we really try to make this different? And and that really carried the day. And that kind of mantra has really kind of carried us forward here with the buildings we're doing now. So I say that to say, to come back to your, your point about, you know, staying in some of these buildings, we've created some really interesting buildings, not just in terms of what we've done structurally or design wise, but, you know, creating great places. So that's the other reason we we've opted to stay into some of these is we want to make sure we see the vision through in terms of what we imagine. And so, you know, we might be stabilized, but we might not be fully there with the retail, for example. Well, if we have a vision for that retail, we have sold that vision to the tenants that are going to be there or, you know, and have already committed. We've made that commitment to ourselves that that's what we're going to do. And so we're going to see it through and, and not just hand the keys and have somebody throw a couple of, you know, retail chains in there to completely change what was, you know, a great design to begin with. I mean, you take like this building called 400 Fairview we have out in Seattle. And that was one where we created, you know, a market hall. You wouldn't dare call it a food court. It's a really, really interesting, you know, first floor open, roll up doors everywhere. Right. And all the retailers are local. I mean, we even have a, you know, a small flower shop and it's a woman who pulls her car in every day and, you know, sets up a little stand. Like all of that is all local, no national vendors. So I've seen, we've seen recently food halls open up exactly. around Washington. Yep. But it sounds like that was more than just food. It was. It was. There were some hard goods and some things like that. And uh, it was heavily curated. And But you know, there was no way we were going to sell that and let somebody finish that and not have right. it be what we designed and what we planned. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, we sold maybe 80, 90% of that and, and stayed in and managed it and finished that, that vision and got it to where it needed to be. And then a couple of years later, sold our interest you know, back to the, to the owner. And, you know, same thing in Houston and on a few other deals. We've done it recently. Big Tower in Seattle. We sold a significant portion to Hana and uh, Korean teachers last December. Very interesting deal in the middle of COVID, about $700 million deal. Big high rise. But we are staying in that because there is still more to do to, to finish the vision there. And it's not just the design. It's not just the architecture. It's really everything to do with the you know curation of the ground floor plane you know, the hospitality component, getting the right retailers in there, being strong enough to say no to one retailer and yes to another, even if financially it's not as attractive, but it, it, it creates the place. And, and that's really what's important to us. And I think really where we've been very successful. So now I want to talk about what makes Skanska so different. And the, you mentioned financial. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about the financial side. Sure. That's where I come from. Yep. And I had a story. I met with, I think Thomas Henriksen was the fellow that I met yeah. with. So Thomas was our first CFO and came over from Sweden. Yes. Yeah, so when I met with him, and actually I was introduced to him by a young man who now is a Columbia National who worked for you at that time. Justin. Justin. Yes. And so, but I sat down with Thomas and I said, so I'm in mortgage banking. I'd love to do business with you guys. He said, we don't, we don't finance buildings, John. I said, really? So your construction business drives everything for, for as far as debt and equity, both? He said, yep, that's the way we do things. Right. I said, well, that's interesting. So my question to you is how does the, the discipline come in right. financially to the company to say, okay, well, sure, you're, you're an operating business. You're obviously, margins are really important in the construction business to, sure. to be successful. But owning a, a building, 
an operating a property is a different kettle of fish than running a construction company because the perspective is usually longer term. You're, you're not buying and you know building merchandise to sell, but you're building mer- investment to hold usually in real estate. So the mindset of that to me has some implications. So one, I would think it affects your leasing strategy mm-hmm. to some extent. It affects your hold, obviously. Now, what I was told when I was growing up in the industry is that a merchant builder is out there for fees and he's there to, to get as much, create as much you know, implicit value up front, not for the long haul. So he's going to build somewhat you sure. know, cheap, move it quick. And it's, it's a process of, and like the home builder mentality, sure, exactly. of churning property, right. a different mindset. So what you've brought, and I'm going to be philosophical here, of that. so I'm thinking the Europeans think long-term by nature. Right. Their buildings are averaging probably 50 to 100 years old Correct. on average. They don't think like we do in this country. It's not the same mentality as far as growth. So it seems to me what you've done is you've brought that thinking and that discipline of thinking long, but then you're manufacturing buildings in a high quality nature. So right. How was that description? I think it's a really good description. You know, we, we I think it's I think it's pretty spot on. You know, we 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 don't love the sort of merchant developer moniker or the connotation that goes with that for the reason you just described, because that is not what we build. And we absolutely build very, very high quality buildings. There's there's no exception to that. It's fully supported. You know, we're not looking to cut corners. If anything, we probably spend a lot of dollars that other people won't spend on buildings. We know that when we do end up selling them and, and you know, again, we're not always selling these right at stabilization like we might have in the past or in other places, you know, some are held for longer periods, but everything is constructed, designed, and planned with, you know, 50 to 100 years in mind. And, and so, you know, the way that's played out is once you can establish that brand and, and back it up with the actual product and, and the quality of tenancy that you get with that and, and the cash flows that come with that, you know, the, the investors want to be part of that. I mean, I've had investors come over from Europe and say, look, we came in second on you know, two deals in Europe and one in Sweden and, you know, second or third, we think on one of your U.S. deals, what do we have to do to get a Skanska building in our portfolio? We need to have a Skanska building in there. I mean, that's literally the conversation that, that we have sometimes with people and, and the calls, I guess. So uh, I think if you build the right thing, it absolutely pays back. Now, what's interesting is you talk about discipline and rigor. I mean, you know, one, it starts with the right teams and the right people, you know, and getting all the right assets on board and, you know, the right experience, we do a lot of homework. I mean, we really do a lot of work. It's not sort of off the cuff, but that said, you know, we pull in data points that you wouldn't even imagine. None of them tell us whether it's right or wrong, but it gives us a lot of sort of supporting confidence to make a decision. In the day, you know, we're really, you know, there is a lot of rigor uh, and we understand the risk we're taking, but there's a real belief that if you do the right thing, the right things will happen here, which sounds a little bit you know, perhaps a little bit aspirational, but but the reality is it's true and it's proven to be true. And so, you know, there are plenty, you could probably take any one of our deals and put it through the filter that another developer or certainly an investor or or financing group might look at. And there's plenty of things they would take out of our buildings because you don't see them. 
but we know they're there and we know we're building high quality buildings. I mean, you, you look at, you know, I'll take an example like over in Roslyn and in, or in uh, Roslyn, our last building, 1776 Wilson, and a lot of our other buildings. Depending on what we think is happening in terms of, you know, the climate in whatever market and snow removal and that kind of stuff, you know, in our garages, we'll do epoxy coated rebar, a corrosion inhibitor in the concrete, and an epoxy coating, right? And we've had structural engineers come in with buyers and say, okay, I can tell you that one will last this long, two will this last this long, three we've never seen. It's kind of belt and suspenders and another belt. But what I can tell you is in five years, you're not going to be jacking concrete out of your garage, shutting down a few spaces, having water leak through. And we've lived in garages and spalling. We've lived in those garages, right? We've all seen them. So, you know, those are things that buyers look at and say, okay, if they're going to put that much quality in the garage, I can only imagine what's been done throughout the rest of the building. And they're right. So, you know, for the right investors and pension funds and groups that are going to have a longer term view and a longer term hold, I mean, that's, that's who we're building for. And, and, and for the tenants in the building. I mean, I go back to the concept of user experience. We want to build the best possible buildings. We want to have the most amount of daylight getting into the core. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about lead and, and sustainability and environmental and health and wellness. But I mean, we put every possible thing in long before COVID to make these the healthiest spaces you can be in. And that's a lot of, a lot of that comes from Europe as well. You know, the expectation of clean air and daylight, you know, really kind of drives the way we operate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, I mean, you see probably riding up the elevator. I, I noticed the sign this morning, you know, that all the filtration in the elevator in the building goes through, you know, double MERV 13 filtration. Well, years ago, that wasn't, that wasn't that popular because it was a lot more expensive. You need bigger equipment to pull the air through those filters. But the reality is, you know, years ago, you used filtration to keep dust out of the equipment, right? I mean, that's kind of why you had filters a long, long time ago. Now it's about keeping the air quality in the building at a much higher level. And if you take MERV 13 filtration, just as one example, and it's been around for a while, we put it in almost every building we've done so far, you know, 98% of everything, you know, greater than one micron is filtered out. So you really are creating a lot cleaner air. You're doing more air changes per hour. And then we also use CO2 sensors. So if you've ever been in an older building, two o'clock in the afternoon, kind of stuffy, it's hot, the room's kind of stale. It's not going to happen in our buildings because CO2 sensor is going to catch it. It's going to kick in more air. I mean, we're not quite Vegas. We're not pumping in oxygen to keep the gamblers <laughs> awake all night, but we're going to keep the people in there awake and efficient. And, and that, you know, and people understand that and they're starting to value that, I think, especially post-COVID, but even pre-COVID, it was heavily valued. So as a development company within a construction company, you're going to have clients in the construction company, and that's your, that's your big kahuna. Right. Let's say, now wait a minute, you're now competing with us here, so how would how you manage that process? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, early on, that was a big question uh, that came up, and you know, when we were touring different markets and trying to decide where we would launch, each of the markets has a different book of business from a construction perspective in terms of know, clients and what they do. The reality is our construction company is tremendous and they do they do a lot of great work. They do some developer work, but it is not the lion's share of their portfolio. So they do a lot of, you know, higher education, healthcare, life science, and, and other, you know, government schools and things of that nature, you know, public arenas and football stadiums and things for universities like that. So they've got a very, very wide range of work that they do in the commercial space. Some of it is developer, but it's not, again, not the lion's share. So we really haven't seen that be an issue. If anything, I've seen it in a couple uh, situations where we've had you know fellow developers here in town say, "Wow, that building looks great. 
you know, can I come take a look at it while it's under construction? We want to see what you do with the glass and we'll bring them in and, you know, share our ideas with them. And then they're in turn, you know, pulling in the building guys to build their building because they see they're doing a good job. Now, if we're right next door to a deal and we might be competing ultimately for tenancy, yeah, the chances are that developer is not going to hire our construction group for that deal. But other than that, they, we're still doing developer work uh, on the construction side for select developers. And in some cases, I think our work as a developer has helped you know, foster that business a little bit. So you're bounded here where we're sitting by two Boston properties. Yes. Buildings. Yes. So my guess is Ray's not going to hire Skanska. Uh, <laughs> well, I, well, I would say he, he certainly didn't hire Skanska for, 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 these, for these two buildings and, and not the one next door. But but I, I wouldn't say he would never hire Skanska. I mean, I mean, I, mean I, I think, you know, I mean, I breakfast away the other day, you know, great guy. And I think in this business and certainly in this town, there's a lot of, you know, fellowship amongst competitors in this business. And well, Ray's you know, great. He's Absolutely. It prints the gold standard of on our business. So, but yeah, no, you're right. Next door, that probably doesn't happen. But, you know, if he had something somewhere else, I would, I would think we would probably be considered for it. In other markets, we really haven't seen it to be that much of an issue. But again, it, your, your point's valid, though. If it was the lion's share of the building work, it, it could have been an issue, but it really isn't the lion's share of the work. So, mm-hmm. well, Clark got around it by partnering with his right. clients. Right. In essence. So. Yeah. And then who knows, maybe in the future, that's something we talk about too. Sure, sure. So Skansk has been primarily an office developer mm-hmm. through most of its time. And I, I don't know if that goes back to your origins in Europe, only being an office, not doing right. retail or other, other, other types of projects. But now you've diverted into, into the residential business. Talk about how that, that evolution Sure. It's such an interesting story. You know, you're correct in that in, in Europe, the Nordics, we've done predominantly office with our commercial development group. Mm-hmm. We do have residential development groups over there, but they're separate entities. Over there, it's predominantly for sale product. So what we would think of as condo. And the reason for that is, you know, in Sweden in particular, you know, the rental market is not a very attractive developer market. You've got very strict government controls on rent and leases, and it's very, very structured. So very minimal ability to grow rents and to even manage rents to any kind of market level. So the rental product is not a very popular development product. It tends to be more of a, an affordable situation that's you know driven heavily by government regulations there. So it's not as popular in the development world. Whereas for sale product can can be you know really anything you want it to be. So coming into the US, the plan was to take forward what we call CD commercial development and not really think about an RD or residential development unit here in the U.S. The difference in the U.S. is that for rent product is very popular. It might be the most popular and hot asset you know, class for investment right now in the country. So, you know, we looked at it. We obviously had people on the team with experience in multifamily and you know, decided to probably six, seven years ago to start making the case to add that to our, you know, to our repertoire, for lack of a better term. And the reason we were able to really make the case is that We've got, you know, we're, only, we're not building sort of stick or 502 or 501 kind of stuff. We're doing really, you know, commercial type one concrete high rise structures. Now, in the construction division, were you doing residential before you started doing it in the commercial? Some, some. Uh, again, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a large percentage of their work, but yes, the the assets were there, and yes, some of it was being done for sure. So, but what we what we you know were able to the case we're able to make is sort of fitting the multifamily 
building, apartment building in the U.S. sort of fitting it into the model of an office building through the lens of the way we look at investments in Sweden. And so the reality is, you know, you're going to build an apartment building here. You can sell the entire apartment building. It's a very liquid asset. And the buyers are likely some of the very same buyers that buy our office buildings or institutional investors. The difference, really the, the main difference is that you're not likely to lease any units until you deliver an apartment building. So in terms of the timing of the, of the cash flow and the ability to establish that cash flow, you're looking at a longer stream. But at the end of the day, it, it can be sold or, or managed just like an office building. And that's very different than the way things work in certainly in Sweden and, and to some extent in parts of Central Europe. So when we kind of put it in that light, then it said, well, okay, let's let's try it. So we did a building out in um, Seattle called Alley 111. Very successful deal, leased it and, and sold it. We've done a couple in Boston. We did one called the Harlow, which is over near Fenway. Great. And that turned out as a fantastic deal for us. And then one called Watermark Seaport, right in the Seaport District. And then now we've done Risa here in Noma, was our first first uh, apartment building in DC. Very successful deal. We sold to Northwestern Mutual mm, two years ago, and we're soon next week breaking ground on our second apartment building in Noma. Why not do condominiums here? You know, it, it's a good question. I, I think you know, in time, possibly, we felt like when we look at that space, there's plenty of people in that space. We would need to be a little structured, a little bit differently from a construction standpoint. There's obviously liability and risk that goes with construction that you know it's not ideal. Can they do it? Yes. Have they done it? Yes. Is it the preference? Probably not from a construction standpoint. From the development standpoint, we could certainly develop it. You know, we'd have to augment the organization, you know, for a little more direct to consumer sales piece, which is, you know, important to be in that. But you know, the apartment side just really aligns very well and is a is a pretty seamless partner to the office here. And and quite frankly, our success on that front has has been driven by some of the same, you know, same, same mantra strategy as the office. If you look at Risa, the apartment building in Noma, the first one we did, I mean, it's a very, very cool building, for lack of a better term. We brought in a group called um, Spaces Copenhagen, which is a Danish architect, to do all the interiors. And you know, when we brought the Swedes and some of our, our Nordic colleagues over, I mean, they fell in love with it. And quite frankly, the tenants in D.C. have, too. Uh, Washington Magazine did a great write-up on it. It's a very different feeling building. You know, we did what everyone has to do in terms of competing in the amenities arms race. And it's, I mean, it's an amazing building. I'd like to live there. And so, and, you know, the subsequent building, Osma, and then the one after that will be similar. They'll, they'll all have something different, different unit sizes, kind of appealing to a different demographic, but really, really thoughtful amenity spaces. The new one has you know, Japanese tea rooms and yoga rooms and a secret garden for meditation. And I mean, these are things that, and a little bit larger unit size, a little bit higher end finishes in different cases. So appealing to a different demographic, but we're really spending a lot of time to sort of get in the minds of who that tenant will be and create a really cool asset. Being in a construction company basis, it seems to me that right now the office market and even in the residential market, we're looking at make make more sense to readapt existing property as opposed to doing you know clearing a site and ground up right so have you looked at adaptive reuse in any in any of your uh, development you know at all? i would say very little john we, we certainly considered it and, and i think you're absolutely correct that i think we will see more of that coming you know when, when i look at where we are in the office space right now i mean 
you know, we're able to compete because we're building great buildings that have every possible cutting edge technology and, and thought going into it. And, you know, we're fortunate that we're, you know, we're leasing space in those buildings. But I think if you're looking at older, you know, A minus B sort of more commodity assets, it's going to be harder and harder to make the numbers work in terms of office leasing there. So I think when you own some of those, you absolutely have to consider it. We haven't looked at much of that yet. Not to say we wouldn't. I mean, we could absolutely do it. I think for us, you know, the mission is not quantity, it's quality. So we, you know, we need to do, we need to do business. We need to be in business. But I think we would only do something like that if we could make it really, really special. It would have to be something very different. I could see it being something maybe more historic that had, you know, very unique architecture. But if it was a pretty, you know, call it commodity, A minus B building that was built 20 or 30 years ago that doesn't have any really unique features and low ceiling heights and things like that. I'm not sure if we could do enough with it to make it make sense. And, and for us and our brand and, and what we want to do, that's it's probably not in there. And we don't need to do deals just to do deals. So now, easy for me to say right now, if you run into a point where you're in the best locations, there's absolutely zero opportunity to take things down. There's zero land and you run into a scarcity, then you probably have to be more creative around some of those. But we looked at a couple things. It's not to say we wouldn't, but it would be a heavier lift for us only because we'd really have to be sure we could do something that we'd want to put our name on. If I'm not mistaken, you're involved in the Empire State Building in New York City, correct? Well, we're officed there. Okay. Uh, and for our, our construction group is, is basically headquartered there. What's the what's your thought about that? Well, I, just, I thought that Skanska had some construction activity. Absolutely. Within the building. So Absolutely. Just, that's... We're, for sure. where I'm going with Oh no, for sure. We've done we've done quite a bit of the of the public space work. We just did all the work on the top where they on those top floors above it's like up, up 101 to 108 or you know that that new higher level that you can you can visit that and that observation deck, all that work with our guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot in that building. And, and early on when we moved in there, we worked with the, the ownership there to you know really work on making our space early days of of lead, but you know we wanted to have lead platinum space, and that required the building to make some changes, which they did. Everything from you know some things with energy efficiency and and the cleaning products they use and, and that kind of thing. But I mean, it, not that we had to convince them; they were very welcoming of the idea, and I think it helped them lease more space in the building. So it was a, a win-win there. But yeah, we've we've had a good relationship with the ownership there, and and done a fair amount in that building. That's I guess that's where my question came sure. from because you know it's an iconic building. It is. It is. So if you're looking at Washington, D.C., for instance, an example that I bring up, and I interviewed Dan Matthews, who used to be the head of GSA. He's no longer, he's now at WeWork. Okay. And, you know, they are, they were, he was looking very hard at their own properties, just trying to figure out what to do with these buildings. Right. Looking at Southwest Washington, some of these monstrous buildings, how do you adapt them? You know, it may not be a government demand situation anymore going forward because, you know, the work from home thing is now kind of influenced the government to say, why should people commute? Why why do we need the space here, per se? So the question is, you look at buildings like that, sites, is that a scrape for somebody like Skanska to to go after? Or would would you look at trying to adapt to something? I, I think on something like that, if you're talking about scale or something, you know, it's potentially iconic in nature. 
I, I think you could absolutely look at doing something with that. I think you'd have to, right? I don't think you ever could make it make sense. And you might not even be able to scrape some buildings like that if you wanted to. I saw some really interesting designs for, for FBI and, and you know that, that came through the pipeline. And so there's definitely some ways to do that. But but I think you're on to the right track there. And as much as if we were to do it, it would probably be something more in that vein. It would be something that's larger, maybe more iconic. It wouldn't be to just, hey, let's convert an old building to apartments because we can do that. So a mid-block building in, in CBD wouldn't be an attractive thing. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Probably not. I, mm-hmm. You know, again, I, each building's a little bit different. If we thought there's something unique or really special we could do there, then we would absolutely explore it. You know, again, we've got a pretty good pipeline here. We have some other things coming soon. So, you know, right now we're seeing for the most part in most markets enough of pipeline and backlog of what we want to do that we've been fortunate not to maybe have to stretch into something that we don't necessarily want to do. Does your financial strength give you the opportunity to look at office where other people are saying, I just can't make the numbers work right now. The penciling of, the, of a deal just doesn't work for me because I have a financial partner has certain demands. Right. You look at things maybe a little differently. Potentially. I don't think so. I, I you know, I mean, I don't. I, it's hard for me to say exactly what some of those demands are and what those expectations are. But we certainly see occasions where we're able to buy land, and I don't think we're overpaying for anything, but we're able to pay what we think it's worth and, and make some deals in an environment where you know, in some cases, we're just looking at the hold, but we know that we're buying a really good piece of land and there's no chance that it's not going to be valuable at some point. So do the numbers work today? Maybe not. Can we sit on it for a couple of years? Sure. And in the interim, if there's sort of a pre-lease or a play there, great. So, I mean, that can be part of it from a land banking perspective. I mean, you know, when there's great sites, they're always going to be great sites. So that I think that's part of it. But yeah, I think we have some flexibility. It's not to say our returns are, are not uh, aggressive or the expectations for the capital are, are high, but I think we can be patient when we need to. And I think we can be opportunistic when we need to. And, you know, most of the deals, especially starting here in the U.S. and, you know, the first two deals in the U.S. were in D.C., one in D.C. and one in Arlington, you know, starting deals and being able to start deals when other folks are not as comfortable or maybe they're not penciling or other people aren't starting, those are good times to start because when you deliver, no one else is delivering, right? Exactly. And so, you know, we, we believe heavily in that. And then we, and we also believe that if we've done what we're supposed to do in creating a great building, a different building, something that's better, something that people are really going to want to go to, that when we deliver, absorption doesn't really, new absorption doesn't really matter that much because people are going to be happy to come out of old space and come into new space. And that's kind of the way it's worked for us so far, certainly in DC. And we haven't had any you know, windfall absorption years in, in this city, but we've done well with our leasing. What we're seeing now in this country is, you know, moving away from the, the major markets a little bit more, more secondary mm-hmm. development, Raleigh, Durham, and, you know, Charlotte, markets like that. Is Skanska looking at new markets and, you know, what, how is it different developing in a smaller market than in, in a market like D.C. and New York? Right. It's a good question. Uh, the short answer is, I, I believe we will start to look at some of those markets. Historically, we've thought of like, we have a strong Houston operation, but the construction team also builds in Austin. So, you know, that's not a big jump to go from Houston to Austin, almost as a satellite kind of thing. And you could you know, use the team you have in Austin, or excuse me, in Houston. That said, getting site in Austin is another, another kettle of fish right now. But, uh, but in concept, I mean, from D.C. here, we could consider Baltimore or Richmond or even something in the Carolinas and have the core group here and a smaller group there. Two things we would need to consider in, in you know, 
if and when we really start to look at um, secondary markets like that, would be the presence of our building company because that is a real asset and a differentiator. If they're not strong or comfortable there, then we're not going to be comfortable there. Right. And sort of you know parachuting in with a developer and a contractor is generally not a recipe for success in any market, and certainly less so in a smaller market. Right, having those relationships with with the engineers and subcontractors and all the different players there is pretty important. And not everyone's going to be a national player in some of the smaller markets. So it's definitely a possibility. You know, we see that trend, and obviously with you know post COVID, we're seeing you know more you know Nashville and other cities. I mean, Florida is the beneficiary of a lot of companies. People moving from New York, people big you know Colony Capital coming out of LA, going into Tampa or wherever they went. You know, so there's a lot of places like that that are worthy of consideration. You know, we're finalizing a new business plan right now globally. It'll be released in December, and you know, once we finalize that, I mean, that certainly could be part of the equation to start to explore a couple of new markets. But I don't think we would. You know, we have enough going on in the five that we're in that you know I, I don't think we'd be rushing to another market. But you know, we would certainly consider that at a certain point. So to talk a little bit about the vertical distribution of your company as far as, so you build a project, mm-hmm. you deliver it, in essence, lease, you get it leased. So then what happens with regard to operating the building? Do you do that yourselves? Do you farm that out? Right. I mean, how does that, how do you? So, how do you so, so we bring in, we don't have property management. We do have an asset management function here that helps coordinate and manage the property managers. You know, we've been very fortunate. And I, I see, you know, some people sort of take property management and parking for that matter for granted. We do not. They're very, very important parts of any deal. I think they're uh, unique skill sets with experts. They're very much client facing. So it's important for us to make sure we get that right. And they have a lot of knowledge that I think sometimes is not brought to bear and should be. So if you go back to 10th and G, one of the things we did, you know, in redesigning that building, and we've done this ever since, is bring in, then it was Lincoln Property and Colonial Parking. And we brought them in to look at our plans and our drawings. This is before we even put a shovel on the ground. And in both cases, the advice that they gave us was outstanding. And there were things that we didn't think of that they thought of in terms of how you manage a building and how you operate a building that we instantly drove into the design. And same thing with parking and efficiency and you know how those things would lay out. And we made those changes on, on their advice. And we've worked with those two groups in particular all the way through. So we know that they bring a lot to the table and in, in all our markets, you know, we have the same conversations with whoever we're working with in that market, but asset management. Yeah, of course we have that function, but, you know, property management, we think is an important expertise and, and we value it, you know, again, early on, not just with the early design input, but as we're going through, you know, we bring in the building engineering team, you know, multiple points during construction. So they see what's going in place. They know what's behind the walls. They know how it was put together. And then they're involved in design or startup and commissioning so that they really know exactly how it's supposed to work. And then they can operate the building at the level we expect it to operate. You know, you'd be shocked. And I've seen different stats, the number of buildings that are designed and theoretically built to appropriate lead or energy efficiency standards that run worse than buildings that are not because they weren't actually startup and commissioned properly. And they're actually not managed in terms of operation properly. So you really got to get your, I mean, if you're going to put the investment in, which we are, do the right thing. You have to follow that all the way through with the right people and sort of means and methods to make sure it actually does what it's supposed to do. Well, that thematically is 
why I'm asking why you don't bring as much as you can in-house as opposed to outsourcing. Right. Right. Yeah, it, that, that's that's a good question. I, I think it's a question of scale and, you know, depending upon how long we're holding assets, I mean, we're starting to hold some of them longer now. If that's the case, maybe we need to add a little bit more to our team. We've talked about, you know, we just added an asset manager, a U.S. head of asset management, Dave Peterson joined us here recently, beginning of the year. You know, we're open to, do we need to put some more people under Dave? Does that make us better? Because we want all of our buildings to, you know, not look the same by any stretch. We expect all of them to be very bespoke, but we want the experience and the performance to be the same. So if we do need to do that, we will. I think it's something we're looking at. But right now, we've been fortunate to find the right local partners, get them involved early enough, and really give them some seat and voice at the table to help influence some of that and help us drive you know, what we see as our vision in terms of customer experience and performance. You know, they're helping us drive that in. So as long as we have that, I think we're okay. But you're right. I could see us bringing a little more of it in because little by little, we're going to put more and more of our fingerprints on that experience and on, that, on the building performance. And that's actually one of the reasons I didn't mention that earlier that we've talked about keeping buildings longer or at least keeping a share of them is we're spending a lot of time and money to make sure these are the highest performing assets in any market and that they can you know, pretty much beat anything on the block. We need to see how that works. And, and so staying in these buildings, at least in some investment capacity, gives us full transparency into the performance, what's working, what's not working, so that the next building we do, we're going to take everything that worked there and take out the things that didn't and make that building every a little bit better. I mean, well, as you're bringing your European investors here, yeah. and they're saying, well, we want a Skanska building, as right. you said. It seems to me that you have an opportunity to have a, a Skanska building for indefinitely as long as they own the building sure. from an operating standpoint and management. I, I just, thematically, right. it makes a whole lot of sense. You're right. I mean, from an operating perspective, it, it, it's critical. You know, some of the buyers, and especially if you talk about some of the foreign investors, will, will tap a local or, you know, U.S.-based partner, and many of them have their own property management, and it's a fee stream. So, of course, we haven't gotten to a point where we've, you know, sort of had that demand or been prepared to do that. But it, 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 it's possible. I mean, it's something, it makes sense because it supports uh, our building being our building and, brand. and our brand over the long run. And, and we really want to make sure that happens. So, no, it's a good point. It's a good point. We're not there yet, but... But and I know in Sweden we have you know some operations more robust than we have here as it relates to that and for that reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the other thing we're seeing in the office sector mm -hmm. is obviously the much more flexibility with regard to users, what they want. Not you know they want they want shorter terms. Right. They want you know they may have to they may even give up the freedom or the you know the opportunity to be. You know, more unique in their space needs right. to, to have the flexibility to offer amenities to their tenants and right. things like that that they want and the work from home thing and how that's going to influence the use of office space going forward. Right. So how is Skanska addressing that? How are you looking at it? You know, are you looking at doing, in essence, an internal WeWork structure of right. some sort, like almost every developer is in this country? I know. You know, so so the, the the first thing I'll say is we're absolutely looking at it. I mean, it, for the last few years, it's not anything you can ignore. We have to recognize there's a lot of need and demand around flexibility. We did not, never, or to date, we've never done a WeWork deal. 
We've only done one co-working deal since we've been in business really? in the U.S. And that was with Regis or IWG was their parent. We used their Spaces brand in Seattle. We didn't end up taking back some of their space late last year because as you can imagine, Surprise. they were completely, but they kept a floor and that seems to be going well. And you know, still a, a good credit entity behind, but that's the only that's the only co-working deal we've done. We had an opportunity in nineteen to do a pretty significant deal in Houston with WeWork. It was right before, or right around the time they released their S one for the first time they were going to go public, and we elected not to do that deal unless we were going to get some kind of you know more of a, a better securitization. The parent wasn't wasn't a clear path there, so. We've not had co-working in our building. I like the idea of it. In Central Europe, we partnered with a co-working company and owned part of it, ended up owning all of it at the end of the day. And that is a very small group, but we put them in some of our buildings and that works pretty well. And it's a nice amenity to tenants. It allows people if they need a little expansion space. So it has worked. The, the challenge I see here in the US as it relates to us perhaps having a group like that is, you know, do we how committed are we to running that company after divest a building and then what happens if it's you know, at that point. So I'm not sure we're there. I could see us partnering with a certain group, but somebody that's you know got enough stability and, and wherewithal that you know whether we're the owner or partial owner or not an owner of the building at all, it still has a, a way forward. I think there's there's value in that business. I mean we, you know we'll see obviously we work back on the on the board now and you know stock us up out of the box a little bit. I think with the right leadership, those companies can do well, and I think there is a market for them. It's still a challenge for us to figure out how they fit in our building because we're really about putting the right tenants in, credit tenancy, and and offering that to an ultimate investor at some point in time. And you know the the coworkers don't necessarily offer that, but we are we are you know heavily focused on the experience in our building. And I've talked a lot about user experience and. And you know what it means to be in a Skanska building, and if what that co-working environment can bring is something we need in our building to make it a better destination, a better place for the tenants, then we obviously have to consider that. And so we've talked about it, and we're we're working on some different thoughts around that. One of the things I do like with groups like that, there is a group I don't know how they're doing now, but there's a Convene has been out there for a while. What I liked about Convene, at least initially, is they in visiting some of the locations early on was very high-end conferencing space. And so, you know, a lot of tenants, us included, will need to have a big meeting for a day and we'll go rent a room at a hotel and pay whatever that costs. And and that's fine. But, and sometimes that works well and the AV guy has great equipment and sometimes not. You know, I think Convene and other groups like them, you know, have very, very well-appointed, high-tech, very efficient conferencing space. And so that piece I find important. We're starting to put more conferencing in our buildings. In fact, we're going to but a conference center in here as well. You know, so maybe there's a partnership for someone who's going to own or sort of run and manage that with us in some way. I think that makes sense. Whether or not we need a full-blown co-working in the building and whether or not those groups are going to scale into bigger tenants, I, I don't know if that's a fit for us given our, our sort of business model. Mm-hmm. But we absolutely recognize that there's that there's value there and that you know flexibility is important. One thing we have done with, I think, to some success is our spec suites. And we've done very nice spec suites. So we did four or five in here, all of them leased. And, and you know, the, the value proposition there is not quite the WeWork flexibility of a month to month, but, you know, three or five year deal, first generation, brand new fit out space that you can, you know, and we even have, you know, deals with furniture folks. You can be in there in 30 or 60 days. So that model is... They are traditional leases. 
They are traditional leases. They're not licensed. Correct. Okay. They are traditional leases. You're, you're, you're spot on. Now, whether, whether we start to consider spec suites with something a little more flexible, I mean, to me, like those are paths that we might consider more so than us getting into the co-working business itself. Well, you started your career in the hospitality space. Mm-hmm. And the way I see office, and you, you tell me if I'm wrong, because you're in the business every day, that I think we're moving more and more towards a hotel model yes. in, in owning office buildings, where, in essence, <laughs> tenants are going to be, you know, licensees as opposed to tenants, per right. se, in the long, even law firms long term. Right. Because of the users, the, the individual, the people coming to work don't need to come in every day. And right. So the question is, why do we need the space? Why do we let space sit vacant and pay for it? Right. It just makes no sense from a business standpoint. So I guess that's where I'm thinking it's going to go. And I'm curious yeah. what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think to some extent it goes there. I, I think, you know, we've just signed two very big law firm leases this year. One to pre-lease half of building in Houston, one pre-lease our new 17th and M building here to Gibson done a couple of weeks ago, which is 50% of that building. Have you measured the amount of users, not you know tenants, but the actual people mm-hmm. that are using the space that you occupy that, right. that occupy your, your buildings? Yes, yes. And, and and I think in I don't think in any of the markets it's back to full. So you're, you know, you're, what I think percentage you're, do you have a sense? You know, I, I, I think through most of it, it was very low. I think we're back now. I would say it probably averages sixty percent or more wow. now. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, but I mean, Houston feels like it's hundred percent. Seattle is a pretty low number. As I'm kind of saying on average. How about here? Here is I'm going to say. I mean, our our group is mostly here, but I would say the rest of the building. Here is probably twenty five or thirty percent, something like that. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. getting. In yeah, I would agree. So you know, to your point, what I see is you know certainly the hospitality component I think is important in as much as we've got to build places where people want to go. Right. I don't want to just go to some old mediocre building yes. and sit and stare at a wall yes. in the middle of the space in a cube and just be bored out of my mind and and not really in, in, enjoy that experience. So we really have to build. Experiences now. A lot of that has been part of our our thought process and our culture anyway. But it's it's even heightened now. What I think is going to happen is we're going to see more. You know, whether it's law firms or pick your tenant, I think they're still going to have space. They still need face to face connection. I really think there's some businesses that can get away without it. But for most, I think that's how mentorship occurs. That's sure. I mean, I can tell you, we've only been in this space you know a couple of weeks, and we're still getting you know pictures on the wall and unpacking boxes. But just in that time, I mean, I can walk down the hall, I can grab two people, we can walk in a conference room and we can have a conversation that I would have had to set calendar appointments for and it would have taken a day to get on a to get on a Zoom call and it would not have been as engaging at all. So there's a ton of value, certainly in our business, and I think a lot of businesses to having people in person. But I think it's going to be around, you know, I think hospitality is the, the magic word. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll take a walk here in a second, but, you know, we're not done fitting it out, but we have that whole central area that you probably walk through on the way in. I mean, we're going to have couches and chairs and phone booths and, you know, banquettes and TVs and coffee machines and, you know, almost like some Starbucks right there and people can work or hang out or whatever. And we need to create those kind of environments for people. So I think big firms are going to, you know, they may take less space, 
but I think they will have a lot more interesting space and a lot more, you know, uh, hotel-like, you know, connectivity and places where collisions can happen and people can have casual conversations or just work away from a desk, but still feel they can get daylight and have what they need and connect with their colleagues. So we'll see. I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, obviously we're in the business, so we don't want to say offices going away by any stretch, but I really don't think that at the end of the day, I don't think that the complete work from home is going to make sense for a lot of people. I'm sure there are a few businesses that can do it. I know there have been some pretty broad proclamations from some big tech companies about the ability to do that. But at the same time, you know, we, we heard these same companies say, you know, everyone can work from home. And yet we hear their property manager saying they've been told to get the buildings ready to have people back in. Do you think that the current crisis will redirect some thinking to more remote work? We've talked about that. Yeah. But, you know, as far as uh, suburban growth, vis-a-vis downtown yeah. commute here in Washington, obviously, that... It's always been an issue. Yeah. Other markets. Yeah. I think, I think that's part of it. I, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people use the term hybrid. I think everyone's going to be in an office, whether they're in the office five days a week, you know, eight or nine hours a day remains to be seen. I do think that, you know, the ability, and we've proven that we can have some video calls, we can get some things done that are more tactical and, and you know, sort of basic type of meetings can happen via video. And so, yeah, I think some people will be able to work a little bit more. There's probably a few trips I won't have to take. I, you know, I'm used to traveling 120 days a year. I can probably cut that back a bit because there's probably trips I took for a meeting that I can, that I can handle remotely, but there are plenty others. I mean, we're not going to buy a piece of land if I haven't spent a lot of time with my feet on that. Right. And, and connecting with the teams is important. To your point about the suburban piece though, I think it's interesting. I think there's definitely a possibility there. I mean, even pre COVID, I know companies that had, you know, kind of a, you know, a suburban office and a downtown office or people that were doing like a WeWork or something, you know, in Reston for their employees, but then still having their headquarters downtown and you could go and work there in the morning and then drive in here at 10 when there's no traffic. So there's definitely going to be some things around around that space, but I still think it's going to go back to the quality of the asset because, you know, I just don't think you're going to go drive, even if it's close to your house, go drive to just a vanilla building in an office park somewhere uh, you, you might as well just stay at home then, I, I think, if sure. it's not going to be the right environment. So even yeah. those assets are going to have to be you know, improved to a point where, yeah, that's an easier commute, but people are going to have to want to go there. So you're going to have to create something a lot better than what we see now. How did you, how did you manage during the pandemic, your company? How did things uh, operate? I, I, think, you know, I think we're pretty fortunate for a couple of reasons. One... Um, a great team that was highly engaged and, I mean, very, very connected, which helped. I think the fact we didn't have too many deals at a critical point, which was helpful. I mean, we did need to sell, uh, need to, we did plan to sell the two new building in Seattle last year. So that was the one thing we did, you know, want to do and, and had forecasted to do, and it worked out well. So that, that was good. And a lot of communication. I mean, almost over communication. We had calls every day with a lot of people. And, I had a standing call every night for probably the first six months with the other business unit presidents to figure out what we were doing day to day with the company. I was talking to my senior team almost every day and probably weekly all hands calls and that kind of thing just to help people you know, stay engaged and feel engaged and understand what was happening was a challenging time. So I think, you know, erring on a little over communication and being as supportive as we could for our, our, our employees helped, but also, you know, creating some some interesting like limited duration teams. We actually evolved a lot. We did a lot of interesting work on the tech front, on the innovation front, 
and we created teams and yeah, they were working from home, but they were working on different projects other than, you know, they couldn't go down and work on entitlements and go down to the you know city hall, so to speak. But so we had them working on, you know, different design ideas and some of the things we're talking about today in terms of whether it's, you know, co-working or different ways that, that, you know, people will use space and uh, created some, some teams around that. And the outcome was great. We, we made some improvements in our technology. We changed a lot of what we do engaged in Microsoft Teams. We created an kind of an in-house, we call our town center, which is sort of a homepage just for our commercial development group with a lot of knowledge sharing. So we did a lot of things that we might not have gotten done as quickly under other circumstances. But when we realized we're probably going to be hunkered down here for a little bit, it's almost a good opportunity to, to do some of the infrastructure sure. things and to work on some projects that we said, basically, if we do all these now, we're going to be this much more efficient and better when we come out of it and having these things under our belt and just ways of working, using teams and how we connect them. So we did a lot of that kind of work, which we've never really had a, a break in the action, quite frankly, to do some of that. And having done it, I can tell you, I already feel like it works better. The, the connectivity is better. The efficiency of the teams are better. The connectivity of our people in different markets is much higher than it probably ever was because a lot of that was, say, forced, but was you know, was created and, and, and allowed. And, and now, you know, people are connecting much more across markets. So I think a lot of good things have come out of, come out of it for us. And I think from a business standpoint, we're in a pretty good place. And I think we're in a much better position to take on next year. So I feel pretty good about it. I mean, would not have wanted to, you know, if you go back and do it over, you would not have wanted to go through this in any way, shape or form. But I do feel like we really made the best of it and came out a little bit stronger and on a lot of fronts. So as you're looking to employ people. How do you look at that? What are you looking for right now as far as an employer, employee? It's an interesting time. As you, I'm sure, know when it, in, the, in the employment market, we've lost a couple key people, key people, good people, high potential people, not anyone at the higher leadership level, but you know, some of our, our you know, mid-level high potential managers have left, in most cases, not really for you know, a better job, but a different job. You know, we had a a great young guy who said he wanted to live in Colorado. And, you know, he spent a month or two quarantined there and thought it was the best place ever. He'd never been out of DC. He's working in a development company there, a smaller one, but and he's hiking every day and he's living a, a life he didn't think he would, you know. You didn't have an office in Denver. You didn't have an office in Denver. If we did, he would have been there, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. So, you know, some things like that are that are, are coming up and people are making some interesting decisions. And, and you see this in the news every day, the great quit, so to speak. People are really being more thoughtful about quality of life. Uh, as it relates to hiring, though, I mean, we are getting a lot of good candidates. I don't think we have a hard time hiring people. I think people that get to know us and understand our company and our culture want to be here. I think we have a very interesting and, and positive, sort of strong company culture. And we talk a lot about continuous improvement as a company and as individuals. We invest a lot in our people. And we talked about this yesterday. I had an all-hands call. And, you know, the the year-end reviews are coming, but you know, for us, that's that's a really important development planning process. We really spend a lot of time and have thoughtful dialogues with each person about, okay, what do we want to do next year, and how do we get you to that next level? And you know, let's be self-aware. Where are the gaps? Where are the positives? And how do we work on all that kind of stuff? It's not really a, a report card so much as a, a thoughtful conversation in, in career building. So, but in terms of your, your real question here is how you find people or, or who we're looking for. It's unique. I think if you met the people in our company, you would see we have very few of what I would call the usual suspects in our end. People come from different backgrounds. We have 
you know, a young lady that came to us out of school. She was a digital media major, I think maybe full scholarship and did a little bit of work with lease abstracts right out of school and came in as an associate. Now she's a manager doing extremely well. We're going to send her to back to the UK for six months in a kind of a training program. And she's going to work in a company we have there called Blue Kluke, which does affordable housing. It's a partnership we have with IKEA. You can buy your you can buy your house at IKEA. I like that. Yeah, and we have they aren't they here? We'll have to talk about that. I don't. Know. <laughs> I mean, we've had cities call us and say, "Can you bring Seriously? it here?" Because it's really, oh, really it's a great, idea. and it's everything's prefabricated, and they're yeah. you know, they're small but very well homes, and the kind of furnitures in them, and everything yeah. happens really quickly. Outside of UK, I mean, some of the municipalities have basically granted land for it, maybe, sure. and people line up for lotteries to buy them, and they're they're affordable, they're they're capped. But so is this manufactured housing? It is, but they're like almost like little townhouses. So they're like kind of rows. So you have a factory building these we things. Do. We do, we do. So a whole other business line that we formed with IKEA a few years back, but started in the Nordics and 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 then we recently moved it into UK. But anyway, so you know, like I said, we have a young lady that's going to go participate in that and bring some knowledge back as part of her growth. But I, I think the real thing is, you know, we don't we don't value ego. There are no big egos in this. We don't we don't we value collaboration. We value creative people. I think we're a very inclusive culture. I think some of the best ideas we've had. Have come from not unexpected, but but you know, giving people a voice at the table that in other sure. places they probably wouldn't have a voice. And look, not every idea that comes out is great, but the but when you can synthesize a lot of interesting views. I mean, I told our group yesterday on our all hands call. I said, you know, every person in here has a complete network, has a has a has friends, family, has business associates, and has a way of experiencing the world. And, you know, when you walk into a building, what do you feel and what do they feel and what do you hear? Like all that information is data you can't really put your hands on. We need it. And so we really work hard to harvest that. So, you know, we, I would say we hire very, very creative people. We hire for attitude, fit, and, and I think potential. You know, we, we don't love hiring from outside for higher level positions. We really like to grow these sure. people through the company. You know, happy to say our entire senior leadership team and we made a couple of moves recently, three, three new people on that team all came from inside the company and grew up. So that's, that's kind of the plan, but yeah, so it's not easy. We, we take a long time hiring people. I think what's, and we look, I've said this a million times and people that know me might even roll their eyes. So if they hear me say it, but like I said, we hire good athletes. You know, we don't, we don't have a division that just does, we don't just have analysts in one corner and production people in another corner and everybody has a little bit of everything. Now you're, there's a position you're going to play. You might be the you know, running third base here, but we'll put you in any position any day of the week. And I think for a lot of people, that's exciting because they get to see, touch, feel, leasing in all parts of the business. Sure. So the question then I point back to you, since you're reporting now to Sweden mm-hmm. and your direct report is there, what is your upside in the company? Would you then have to go to Sweden? That, that, that's a very tough question, John. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that there is another spot for me. I mean, there's not a higher level role in this business in the U.S. So, yeah, I guess the question would be, you know, do you go to, do you go to Sweden? I mean, it's a possibility. You know, my, my boss over there is a great guy. I don't see him going anywhere anytime soon. He's been with the company a long time and still has some years ahead of him. So, yeah, but that, I mean, that's a good point. I don't think there's another spot here in the U.S., so, and I don't know about, I don't know about, I love it there. I don't know, I don't know about uh, relocating. It's a that change level. in culture. It is. I've relocated a bunch uh, in my life, as I mentioned. So, you know, sure. the thought of a relocation is not crazy, but 
My wife and I are pretty well planted here. I could see if we ever did something, you know, in another market in the U.S., for example, I would still keep this as kind of a home base and, uh, you know, a secondary sure. home or something somewhere else. But we haven't really talked about Stockholm. Well, maybe maybe Skanska would reorganize and you would become, you know, head of all of North American operations. Who knows? Who knows? We got some great people in those seats too. So the, the head of construction, uh, the guy named Paul Humans is doing an outstanding job. And Don Fusco is my peer who runs civil construction, Bridges Roads Tunnels. They're doing really well. And then, and then it's done by named Richard Kennedy, who they, those two report to, who oversees all of US but for development. Mm-hmm. And he sits on the, the global the group leadership team in, in Sweden, but he's, he's an American. So even before we started the conversation, you, you alluded to ESG. So yeah. I want to get into that because yeah. I know that's a big it is a big thrust one. for the company. Then we can take a two-minute break here? Yeah. Okay. Let's do that. I'm going to get a little more water. Rob? So tell me about a little bit more about your ESG policies. Sure. <clears throat> so, I mean, this is something I could probably spend a few hours on, Don. ESG is something that's uh, really ingrained in our, our corporate culture and our values. I mean... We're very much a values-driven company, and when we think of ESG, it's obviously in the last couple of years gained a lot more prominence, and you know, even just the term ESG or the, the letters have become a, <clears throat> a lot more important to people. But I mean, I've been I'm coming up on 20 years with the company now, and I can't really think of a day at Skanska where something along these lines hasn't come up and isn't part of what we talk about. So it's it's really been ingrained in part of our culture, especially coming from Sweden. For a long, long time. For us, and a lot of people think of ESG as strictly environmental or lead and that kind of thing. It's it's much, much more than that. Environmental is certainly part of it, but but the social and governance part is is equally important. And so we've always looked at those three elements in terms of you know how we do business and doing business the right way. So you know we think of sustainability again, not just in environmental terms, but you know social sustainability and and doing the right thing. We have a term in the company or sort of a slogan of us that says, we build for a better society. And that's really what is ingrained in everything we do. We look not just at every environmental impact of an, of an asset or anything we do commercially, but we also look at you know, the social impacts. We look at the communities. You know, we're looking at, at things like supply chain and from a governance standpoint, you know, making sure that all the right ethical protocols are in place. Supply chain is an important thing. We don't want to buy things from the wrong places. We want to make sure that the people we do business with are the right people. When we buy land or even do a lease or a, a sale, you know, we, we put the, the counterparty through a sanctions check to make sure that anywhere in the world there's no issues or complaints about who they are as a company. So we're not going to buy land from someone that might be using that land for some other use or, or have funneled the wrong type of cash in there. I mean, there's a pretty deep way of operating here that has been ingrained in us since day one. And there, you know, historically have been deals that have not been done because they're not a counterparty that we will do business with. They won't pass the sort of right ethics or sanctions checks. So all that kind of go- is what goes into this ESG umbrella. What's exciting to me about it is this is the way we've always worked. It's always been top of mind. It's always the first thing we talk about in meetings and Globally are all of these things. And then and now it's become a lot more important, a lot more prevalent. You see every major fund has full-time ESG people that are looking with with funds. I mean, I think the amount of funds attributable to ESG funds is almost tripled in the last two years. It's it's staggering. I mean, you know, $75 billion or something like that in funds that are dedicated to ESG assets. 
what I think is interesting is a lot of people can define it in some way. Some look at it more from an environmental or carbon standpoint. Some look at it from social impact. Some look at energy efficiency. There's a lot of different ways to sort of couch where you are on that ESG chain. But in all cases, whether people can, can understand exactly what it is, they know they want it. And, and I can tell you there's a lot of funds that want to go in that direction. So when we talk about you know, differentiating and, and divesting assets, there are pools of capital that only want buildings that us or people like us will create. And to be able to define it or to have them be credible, it's a lot more than a, than a lead or a well rating. I mean, it has to do with health and wellness. A lot of it is a little more holistic, but, but I think we have all the right sort of uh, criteria as in our culture and the way we do business that, that really sort of checks some of the boxes if, if they need to be checked. So I'll, I'll be speaking on this topic actually in a, in a couple of weeks. We have a global live meeting and, and this exact topic is you know top of the agenda in terms of how we're working with this and how we're dealing with investors. Some very interesting meetings with you know major investors, pension funds, just in the last six months with their new head of ESG investment that says you know, effectively, you know, talk to me about your buildings. My sense is they will meet our needs and our funds could be directed toward them. How do we start building a relationship around doing business with you? Because that's what's important to us. And it's also what's important to our to our investors, you know, in, in pension funds or in, you know, in the other types of funds that might be established. The social piece is a big part of it and a lot around diversity and inclusion and, and our, our sort of our track record there and our commitment to that culturally, I think shines through in a good way. I mean, we're all, you know, certainly after the last year and a half are all at a much higher level of awareness as it relates to those things. But this has always been part of the way we've operated. I mean, the, the, the Swedish culture is very inclusive, very welcoming. And, you know, we look for, for ways in all our markets to, to bring a very diverse team to the table, not because we have to, but because we think it's the right way to operate. And we love the idea of diverse voices at the table. Quite frankly, it's just good business. So, I mean, all of our sort of innate characteristics, our, our DNA as a company really supports this ESG model that's now become a little bit more popular from a brand perspective. And, you know, to me, it's great. I mean, it's good to see more people recognizing that there's a right way to do business and, uh, and people embracing that. Are you, I, my guess is because the Europeans are kind of leading the world in the, in the technology aspect for, for the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, are you doing some innovative things with regard to your buildings as far as systems and things like that, that are unique to, you know, your, your footprint as sure. opposed to other developers. Sure. You know, the, the, the second part of that, I'm not sure in terms of what other developers are doing, although we do really look hard at what the competition is and seeing how we measure up. We're absolutely spending a lot of time and, and dollars on you know, differentiating our buildings as it relates to energy efficiency and carbon. So one of the things we've done, even back to 10th and G, was a carbon footprinting exercise where we literally tracked every person that came to the site, every machine that came to the site, all the materials and what the overall carbon footprint impact was, and then use that as a baseline to try to improve on other projects. And whether that's using mass transit to get employees or workers to the sites, it's a lot of different things we employ to try to lower that carbon baseline. Here in the US, we worked with Microsoft to create something called the EC3 tool, which is the embodied carbon calculator. And it's, it's really a focus on embodied carbon, which is all the carbon that's in materials and in the cre creation of materials, which once it's in there, you can't sort of get rid of it, right? 
So by focusing on embodied carbon, you can reduce the carbon footprint of anything you build in the built environment, but it, it's going back further in the supply chain. It's using you know, better concrete or different concrete mixes. It's using you know, materials or, or factories that are using more electrification than gas and things like that. So it starts all the way back there. First principles. That's exactly, exactly right. And so we can track all that. And so Microsoft is using that on every project they do. We use it on all of our projects. We've made it an open source tool, so a lot of the industry is starting to use it now. And it's just become a good baseline. I mean, the, the UN Green Conference, Sustainability Conference, about two years ago, there was a whole thing about this EC3, and they had a really nice presentation on it. But, I mean, that's one thing we're doing, and that's been a really joint effort between us and Sweden to roll that out along with the partnership with Microsoft. So there's definitely some things like that. If you think of like specific building systems, we're always looking at what the latest and greatest is market to market. It's a little bit different. In Boston, we've had some success with chill beams and here, and which is commonplace in, you know, we're probably on our fifth generation of chill beams. We have guys that have written books on them in Sweden and our company here in the US, they're not as popular. It's passive cooling. It's a little bit different. It's like more expensive. To do. It's a little more expensive to, to put in place. It's much more energy efficient, but it, you know, you have to have the right system for the right climate. Effectively is radiant cooling. Okay. And you wouldn't notice it. You would just see a little grate like you see here in our office, but our diffuser like that. But what, what's nice about it is in a chilled water system, you probably have to chill your water to say 45, 48 degrees or something like that. In, a, in an ambient cooling or radiant cooling chilled beam system, you're probably cooling it to like 58 or 60 degrees. So there's a lot less energy that goes into that. And then in some cases, you have a passive or an active system. A passive system is really just radiant. An active system has some fans blowing across the you know, across the pipes, so to speak. But, you know, we've used it in Boston with great success. We're not the only one that have, has done that, but it's not commonplace it's in most. part of D.C.? So in D.C., I think there was a big government government, SEC, or one of the big things you talked about over in 7th Street, they did it a few years ago with the ceiling heights. I actually thought it was something that would take off in D.C. a little bit more because in older buildings, you're going to retrofit them. There's a company called Trox that makes a chilled beam unit. They created a seven inch unit and that would allow you to go back into an older DC building with a low floor to floor height that's a cast in place concrete building and create some more ceiling height because you don't need the same plenum right. as you would. Mm -hmm. So I actually thought it would take off a bit more. I haven't seen it in that many buildings in DC yet. We tried it as a, as a test case in Houston. It can be done, but with the humidity down there, it's a lot more difficult to manage. So it's not for every market, but where we can do it, we have done it and it works very, very well. And it's uh, it's highly energy efficient, more than probably any other system. We How have much savings? No, I, 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 I have to get back. I don't know the exact percentages, but I know that when we track it against the other buildings, it's been much much better. And look, this is what they do in Europe and the Nordics forever. I mean, this is not new to them. This is yeah. like, why wouldn't you do it this way? Right. So it, it, it it's just a very different way of thinking for a spec building or buildings when you're having tenants coming and do fit outs. You know, there are some questions around, okay, how do I connect to that? What if I want to expand? Do I need more? It's easy to talk about VAV boxes. It's not as easy to right. talk about different chilled beam units and how many you might need to change and what's required in that. So, you know, if you had to build a suit or, or you had a, you know, early tenant commitment, I would highly recommend it sure. because as, on a triple net basis, they're going to, they're going to benefit oh, in a big, big way. And what about water, you know, cisterns and reuse of yep. gray water and that kind of thing? You know, Market to market, we, we look at it differently. You know, we, we looked at doing it at the building of Roslyn, but the cost benefit just wasn't there for the size of cistern we were going to need. Sure. You know, in, in other markets, we have some things like that that have worked 
have worked very well. You know, Houston has done something pretty interesting in downtown Houston that people wouldn't think. They've created a nice central plant in Houston, a central utility plant that all the new buildings hook up to. So we have all central utilities in terms of, of, of water and steam and that kind of thing coming in, in Houston. That's very common in the Nordics to have more district cooling. You know, we don't have that opportunity other than I think in Houston right now. But as we start to look at larger, you know, campuses, but larger projects, we're looking at the possibility sure. of doing those kind of systems yeah. that can feed multiple buildings. What about geothermal? Geothermal is one we've looked at a few times. Again, I, there's a certain scale there that you need, and, and it also depends on your location in terms of the cost benefit you know, viability. But we looked at it for 99M in the ballpark, and it just wasn't really a viable, yeah. the ends didn't justify the means. But we run all of those things as well as some you know different newer technologies that seem to be coming out we kind of run all those through the gauntlet on every deal sure. and if it costs a little bit more it doesn't have to be a dollar for dollar payback for us i mean again we're spending our own money to make a great building if we think that's going to make it better and it may make it last longer or be more energy efficient you know not everything is going to fully pencil there's a lot of gut in what we do but we think you can't go wrong by doing the right thing and and the reality is some people might some of these dollars back and you know if you've got multiple partners and you know and equity coming from different sources and that kind of stuff it's easy for some of those things to sort of get erased from the page in our world and i can tell you as the leader of the of our u.s investment committee if i don't see that stuff in there it's not going to get approved so i mean people are motivated to come up with the next best thing because you're not going to bring a, a mediocre building even if it, the returns look great to our investment committee and get through so what's your filter for opportunities? What what makes a good site? What makes right. a good deal for best cancer? What are you looking at? So I mean, for us, it's I'd like to say it's pretty simple. I mean, we really want A++ sites. We want the best possible location. If we're going to build it now, great. If we're going to build it later, that's okay. But there are sites that are undeniably good in, in every market. Where, we, where it's tougher is if we start coloring outside that box a little bit. And then we have to make a case for you know, why this location when it's not quite as obvious, but we see things sort of moving in that direction. So, you know, Noma has been that, for example, that wasn't as obvious, but it's definitely come along in a good way. That was a little bit more of a land bank play for us, but, you know, we're starting to consume that now and, and with, with good success on the multifamily over there. Originally we thought it might be office. So, you know, but the filter has got to be uh, a great site, a location where we think we can do something special. Again, if it's, if it's just sort of, run the mill commodity type of, of location and that's the expectation and that's really what the tenant base will want. It's probably not a fit for us. It's not that we expect to get a massive premium, but we expect to have the best building on that block when we deliver it. And we have to know we're going to do that. And then from a financial standpoint, I mean, there's a lot of rigor. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's an instinct. It's a gut decision, I think, because we, we have to feel like everything comes together. But there's a lot of data, a lot of homework that goes into these things before we actually sure. invest. So do you see yourself different? Like, for instance, if JBG Smith or Brookfield or other major developers were looking at it, what makes a Skanska site different from that from one of theirs, just out of curiosity, yeah. if there is such yeah. a thing? I don't know that there's a, a lot that's that's different. I mean, I think they may take on, in some cases, some larger deals and some larger sort of, you know, multi-phased kind of programs. If you think sort of national landing and things like that, sure. that's probably not our world. But that said, we started, you know, with 
kind of one-offs. I mentioned Tenth and G. I mentioned you know in each market we had kind of the first building or two yeah. that we did. Yep. But now we're looking at larger. You know, in Houston we bought beginning of last year end of nineteen we bought you know five sites in, in downtown Houston. One small one and four pretty large ones that are all contiguous. And so we're going to do multiple phases. That wasn't us ten years ago. That is us now. So I think we're starting to you know look at things very much the same way as uh, you know Boston Properties or JBG Smith or some of those folks would. I mean. You know, Brookfield's got a big uh, chunk of land at the ballpark. We've done a couple of deals there, you know, mm-hmm. and we're, we're sort of looking at others. So I, I think we're aligned with some of those groups. I would say on occasion, if anything, we could maybe do a smaller, more unique deal that might not be perfect for them. So like in Beverly Hills, for example, uh, we just opened our LA office in the last couple of years. We've got a site on, uh, not on Rodea, right by Rodea, 9,000 Wilshire. We're starting brand new building, very, very cool. Probably the first new office building in Beverly Hills in 10 years. And it's going to be 40,000 square feet because that's what you can build there. But it's it's the coolest 40,000 square feet you'll find. Mm-hmm. Four stories, indoor, outdoor space, tons of parking because that's what you have to have. And you're a block from Rodeo Drive. Drives. Yeah. So that may not be something that, you know, Ray would look at or no. Yeah. Right. But for us, absolutely. It's, it's boutique. It's bespoke. It's going to yeah. be... Well, cool European, on every level. He likes a European building. Exactly. Exactly. So that's where I think we can sure. uh, differentiate and, and, and also be pretty competitive. I mean, there's not anything of that size in that market that's going to be remotely as interesting and innovative as this building. Yeah. So what development projects you, you, you manage, what, what are the best ways to mitigate risk? In, in, yeah. For me, it's I, I think it's really about the team. I mean, it starts with having the right people. Um, there's no perfect handbook for risk mitigation. It's really about having good experienced people or thoughtful people. Uh, the team members, when we talk about consultants and subs and architects, I mean, all that matters. We spend a lot of time getting to know them. When we hire architects, we have a process. It's not an RFP. We call it an RFC. It's a request for conversation. And we bring multiple architects in and just have conversations to understand what they do and what their vision of our project would be. Then we usually give them some kind of stipend to come back to us and give us some really good ideas on what they might do concepts. And, concepts and then we would select but we're happy to pay a little bit for that because you really want that quality but but we're also looking at like with our building guys and other folks the quality of their drawings you know all those things represent risk we're doing a lot more work in pre-development we're using a, a service or a system called planet which is pretty interesting during pre-development construction where there's just all these reviews of the drawings a third party and in systems that are identifying so many different things that we used to find in the field. And it, it's very, it's very early days. So we're just starting to roll this out and, and see the benefit of it. But there's a number of things that are saving us money on change orders, cost, you know, I and mean, we've got subs involved a lot earlier. So we're doing a lot of different things. We're fortunate to be able to do them because the contractor is our partner. So we're not like designing all the way through and then hiring a contractor. We've got our builders at the table every step of the way. I mean, from the time we buy land, they're looking at it saying, okay, don't forget this. And so we use all of those different tools at our disposal to, to manage risk. But, you know, I, I think it's and a lot of communication and transparency. I mean, there's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of feedback. There's a lot of eyeballs on everything. But I think people on the right team, if you get that right up front and you really vet things out early and, and pressure test things early before you put a shovel on the ground, you can take a lot of the heat off. You're talking about the economic risk mitigation. I mean, that comes with, you know, being as diligent as we can from the marketing standpoint and, you know, doing everything you'd be in the market. But 
I think, you know, ideally we're building buildings that, you know, they may not lease up day one, but they're going to be in a location and of a quality that they're going to lease up. You have to have that confidence going in. Sure. Okay. So uh, let's shift now to your personal life. Yeah. Four minutes to that call, but I'm happy to, it's sure. probably only 15 if you want to sure. connect after that. Yeah. What are your life priorities among family work? You know, so uh, I don't have a big family, just my wife and I. We have two yellow labs that live a much better life than I do. And, you know, I, I think that's a good balance. I mean, you know, certainly I, I work a lot. My father worked a lot. That's just the work ethic, but it's not because I have to. I like to. I really enjoy what I do and I enjoy work. So that that doesn't make it penal in any way. I, my wife's very supportive of that in terms of you know, balance. We try to take some time off. It's interesting in this company, the Swedes very much support, you know, quality of life and balance of life. And, and I, you know, I was on a call yesterday with all of our employees saying, look, you need to take time off. You know, the holidays are coming, you know, get away, recharge your batteries, take a week, take two, whatever you need, you know, the show will go on. And, the, and that's a real, that's a big mantra in our company and a big mantra coming from Sweden. Reality is we're all replaceable. And, and in a good way. I mean, you know, I had our, our senior team meeting a week ago and I said, everyone, turn your phones off for the next three hours. And I said, I guarantee the markets will not crash and the world will not crumble. We're going to be okay. And everyone's super engaged. And, and so I think, you know, that's, I, I certainly credit our Swedish colleagues with sort of not only pushing that, but being supportive of it. If someone wants to take a two or three week vacation or whatever, there is no problem with anything. We highly encourage that. We think people come back better, more rested. Now, I need to probably take a little more of my own advice. I'm very good at giving that advice. I'm not quite as good at taking it, but I'm I'm, I'm working on that. And then, so that's yeah, that's maybe something for me to spend a little more time on and get away a little bit more. Do you do any charitable work? I do. I do. My wife and I both do, and I know I'm fortunate. We're fortunate to be where we are and, and certainly live very comfortably in you know, the communities we're in. My wife lost a couple of family members early to cancer, so she's very involved in different causes related to that. I've been involved with a number of things. The uh, Yellow Ribbon Fund is something that's important to me. I have a friend that works with that. The First Tee, I enjoy golf. I think that the First Tee program is one of the best things you can put young people into. It really teaches them life skills through golf. It's almost like scouting, but I, I really think it's better. And I've seen some amazing kids. I've been part of the First Tee of Greater Washington for probably six or eight years, and just seen some amazing kids come through there. Kids go through coming from a pretty difficult spot, and and then you know they come out of that program. And they're going to Coast Guard Academy, and they're going to great schools. That's and, great. I mean, so yeah, pretty rewarding. And I, you have to, you have to, both corporately but personally, it, it feels good, and you just have to recognize if, if if you've been fortunate, and I certainly have, then that's something that's a big part of your life. So, what advice would you give your twenty five year old self today? Take more time off. As I mentioned, because I don't, I can't, because I was never big on taking time off, and I probably should have done that. But there's still time, and I probably would have invest a little more personally in real estate. There's a number of moments and times there was things I could have done, and I just wasn't sure if I was going to stay there. I wasn't, you know. And looking back, I'm like, oh, probably should have done a few of those things, and even just residential and other things, I probably could have done a little more of that. But other than that, certainly no regrets. So my final question, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? You know, I, I, I thought about this type of question, and it's a hard one for me. But what, what pops in my head is not very catchy, but, but I'll explain it. I, I would say, you've seen the things like, you know, hang up and drive or put down your phone. For me, it's the same idea. I would say put down your phone, but I almost want to say put down your phone and think. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, I, I, if I, I look at these phones, I mean, these things are just driving our lives. I mean, forget the obvious safety of driving in a car and, and, and using one. But if you look at the current environment, whether it's business or political, I mean, everyone lives and dies by what comes up on that screen. And I don't feel like there's enough critical thought. If something pops up and says, this is happening, people think it's happening. If they say this company is doing this, they assume it's going to happen. If they say politically, this is what's going on, people believe it without sort of more thought and, and, and more critical investigation. So I think, and, and especially with me kind of pushing some of our teams to put the phones down a little bit and, and engage more as people, I, I think there's a real opportunity to put the screen away, put the phone down and, and just think and connect a little bit. It's not a great billboard, but I think it was something that we could, it could resonate a little bit. If it could I be agree. Taken from a life. safety standpoint, I agree. And certainly from safety. Yeah, it's absolutely. Oh. Um, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate joining me on Icons of D-Series Real Estate. Thank you very much, John. Great talking with you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. So we just listened to Rob Ward of Skanska talk about his, his career and Skanska's developments. Uh, start and growth in the United States. And uh, that was pretty interesting. So today, I'm also bringing on my sidekick, Colin Madden. Yeah, I also found this to be pretty interesting. And you, you, you all hit the ESG and flex and hospitality and concierge and construction, kind of all the hot topics of, of today's world in real estate, which I've been paying close attention to. So it was, it was good to get other insights from him on, on where he sees this all these trends going. I guess the first topic I wanted to discuss with you was just how they structure their deals and they, they have a no debt structure. I know you're the finance, you have a finance background your entire life. So is this uh, for the for the listeners, can you explain how unique this is that they, they don't use debt and it's all basically balance sheet investing and that allows them to kind of control their, their decisions a little, a little more fluidly? Quite honestly, it's the reason I asked Rob to speak on the podcast is the mm-hmm. whole, because Skanska is a unique company in that regard. They are a construction company first, and that's they started that way in Europe, and then came to the United States, started doing both private and public construction activities for co- governments and developers, and then because they had success with development in Europe, one of the associates, one of the European, one of the Swedish guys came over, started scouting around for development opportunities here as well, bring their style and their their product here, focused primarily on the office sector, which is really what they are the strongest with internationally. And Rob was at the right place at the right time and in Atlanta when they, they recruited him to be on the initial team. He was the only American guy on the team when he came when they brought him out. So, and what's interesting is the business segmentation side. They decided they not, wouldn't compete with developers, so they, you know, their construction business diverted particularly just to this to the institutional side, infrastructure as well as roads, schools, and uh, government work. Mm-hmm. So they focused on development. But one unique aspect of their business is. They self-finance everything. They look at things as real estate somewhat as a manufacturing business mm-hmm. in, in one respect. But in another respect, they have a European perspective, which is long. Europeans look at building a building for 100 years, typically, not for 30 or 40 like in this country. 
I don't really know if they have amortization structures like we have in this country for, for accounting purposes. But valuation in Europe is looked at as a very long process as far as you know doing returns. They don't look at the traditional internal rate return as we do 10, 10, 15 year analysis. They, they look at things long. But at the same time, they don't necessarily here in, in their development process hold long. So mm-hmm. they build for long as far as the structure goes, but they don't hold it long. They look at more merchant type structures on the capital market side. So they, they're in and out of properties usually within five years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. starting with construction. They get it stabilized. They might hold it for a few months. They find an institutional either partner or, or buyer and then they'll they'll sell it. Now, when they've sold properties, they've been most recently 90-10, where they keep 10% interest and sell 90% of the real estate. And they're usually pension funds from Europe or United States. But European pension funds particularly like their product because of the quality of the, what they build mm-hmm. and the and the all the things they put into it. And Rob goes into a lot of depth on the quality of their parking garages, their finishes. He was pretty detailed, as detailed mm-hmm. as any guest I've had yeah. about, about the, the structure and the construction of their projects, which is interesting because that's really not his background. He comes from a hospitality orientation. So he brings that together with the Swedish particular interest in the, in the, in the long-term product, in the product yeah. and the long-term thinking. So that's why I wanted to bring him on. This is unique completely to any other developer that I'm aware of in the United States. Yeah, to, to discuss his technical side, I was pretty surprised. He seems to be very much in the trenches of everything going on in ESG around the world and experimentations from different cities and what's what's working. And I figured him to have more of a high-level kind of management approach to, to work, but it seems like he's you know up to his elbows and down in the dirty, like figuring out all this technical stuff, which was cool to hear that. But it's pretty impressive, like that to have that that deep knowledge, but also the the wide breadth of knowledge running kind of like a multinational company like that. I know we discussed IKEA and the the modular houses. Wanted to get your opinion on that, and do you think that could come to America? And I know European and American cultures are quite different, especially when it comes to housing sizes and consumerism, I guess. Do you think that that type of concept could work over here? Would people uh, trade you know, a big house for a more efficient and affordable house, do you think? Well, I think now is the right time to look at it. Mm-hmm. Look at the escalation of, of residential real estate and pricing over the, around the country. Mm-hmm. And even in, the, even in rural and secondary markets, it's at all-time highs right now. So there's an affordability issue mm-hmm. built into that because incomes haven't grown as quickly as, as, as house values by any stretch of the imagination, almost anywhere in the nation. So to me, there's an opportunity to come in with product that is efficiently developed and built. And with this, with this particular quality overlay mm-hmm. built efficiently in the IKEA way, which to me, as I mentioned to you before the before we turned on record, I think IKEA is one of the three best retailers in the country because of the, their experience, 
and then the product, you know, what they, what they deliver is obviously it's DIY, but you know, it lasts. I, I use an Ikea desk. I have an mm-hmm. Ikea. I mean, I, we have, I don't know how many Ikea pieces of furniture in our home. You know, it's very, very basic. It's very minimalist, but it, it gets the job done. So, mm-hmm. and to me, if you can do that with housing today, I don't think people need all the frills unless they're, you know, in the one, in the top 5% yeah. of the nation in, in, in income and what get what they, the luxury they want. But for basic affordable housing, my God, to me, there's a tremendous gap in opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, like has gotten, when you build your own furniture, there's it's something called the endowment effect where if you built it yourself, you value it more than yes. something you buy. I'm curious if that same effect would occur if you saw your house pop up right away. Well, uh, I, I'm yeah. not so sure that people would, you know, get a, a, a build your own house kit. Right. I, I know they wouldn't build themselves, but they still <laughs> feel like they did a, a ground up for their house and it's, it's very much their own house. Like I'm a second or third generation owner of this house, but I feel like if you pop your, your very own house up, you might value it a little bit more. Well, I think the key is is not an on-site type of thing. It's what they bring to the site. So they might bring three or four pieces that are large, but not too large to transport, mm-hmm. and un- unfold the house right on site. Within 60 days, you've got a house from the start. You just del- yeah. deliver a site, you might have to dig a basement. So by the time you have, if you've got a basement, you know, drop the... the the structure on site and within two months you could have a, a brand new home on the, yeah. on the site with furnishings too mm-hmm. everything it's like and for less than half a million bucks or even less depending on land cost that's the big variable of course is land so if you can you know for instance let's just look at the washington area go out to frederick county just go around frederick within a 10 15 mile radius of frederick there is farmland and land that you could build a lot of housing. I mean, thousands and thousands of lots there you could build potentially. And even Loudoun County, in some parts of it, there's plenty of land. Now, you have to build the infrastructure to get there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Congress is about to pass. If not, they haven't passed this infrastructure bill. The president's going to sign it. That's a, what, a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill? Mm-hmm. I think there'll be a few roads built from that. Right. Now, whether they're going to be primary roads or not, I don't know. But I just think that the market is ripe for a very high quality manufactured housing structure to come mm-hmm. in and build to uh, that because young people want to move. Some of them want to move out of the city, raise their children in a clean environment and have you know a little land. And you can work from anywhere today. So the mm-hmm. question is, why stay in a very small place when you can build something that's not that expensive, own it, and have a little land in nature, maybe? Right. Yeah. Do you think uh, Skanska's ultimate plan is to bring that concept over here and get into single-family development or single-family uh, I certainly, I certainly asked that question yeah. to Rob. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I said, Rob, why aren't they here? Mm-hmm. You know what? <laughs> He is a natural, mm-hmm. but it's interesting. The woman that he trained is over there now yeah. learning. It. So she has a, an opportunity, <clears throat> I'm sure, in the back of her mind. Says, yeah, I want to learn it. 
and then I'm going to come back to the States. And whether I work for Skanska or not, who knows? Yeah. She could set up her own company to, to take, bring that concept here. It, to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I know there's a lot of, you know, this for sale, this for lease housing business, you know, mm-hmm. single family rentals. You, you could build massive subdivisions and just drop them on site mm-hmm. and have, have product immediately and to lease and or sell and structure deals in my mind. You do lease with an option to purchase structures yeah. with, with buyers so that you can pay in and part of your rent goes into the down payment for the house. Mm-hmm. And that makes, I'm sure people are doing it. I'm not the first person that's thought of it. I'm sure there's a lot of that going on now, I would think. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I wanted to get into uh, Scansa kind of blending their business, getting into development, but also ownership and asset management, you seem to think it was maybe risky based on partnerships they've maybe developed in, in certain areas, wanted to give the opportunity to dig into that. Get your thoughts on that? Be more specific. I think you said that some of their partners would be in direct competition with their new business lines. So they're, they're kind of blending their business lines and there might be some overlap with you know previous partners that they're now competing against. And get your thoughts on that strategy and the risks involved. Well, the, the whole idea of the of starting a development business in the United States, they had to look at what's the market we want to penetrate? What, to, what can we bring that the market needs? And so they were looking at the quality of European buildings, you know, the ESG nature of it, environmental, the sustainability, the, the, the design features. He talked about the project at 10th of G, which was their first office development in the, in the United States, where they had they were they got efficiencies out of the space there that hadn't been thought about. He bought the property from Monty Hoffman, one of my other guests. Monty was looking at it as a residential project. They converted it into a commercial and they got more square footage out of the footprint by looking at it a little differently. Now, whether that was a European concept or whether the architect just came up with it. So those features they they look at very carefully, the design and layout. And then the ESG overlay that they put in, and the quality of the of the, of the physical improvements, of course, is important. But the reason they wanted to to do this is in a certain way is they did want to compete with their existing client base. So their existing clients, you know, they compete for very large institutional stuff, and the and the developer clients they had were the major developers that they had. They didn't want to bang heads with Heinz or Boston Properties or other people per se. So, you know, they tried to avoid the construction business pursuing that. Although it's interesting, I asked him the question. So would you, would you pursue a project with uh, Ray Ritchie? Would you compete on a construction job? He said, Oh yeah, but mm-hmm. not in a place where we're directly competing mm-hmm. on the development side, nor would they want that. Right. So it's case by case. They want to build the same quality that Boston Properties wants to build, certainly, if not better in some respects. I mean, they're competing on that in that regard from a development standpoint. But where Boston Properties is constrained is, you know, they're a public company. They have debt. They have to raise capital. They do it on the Wall Street. Skanska doesn't do that. They can do it internally. So where Boston Properties may sold, hold off on developing something, they could go ahead and build spec. Today, in this environment, any office builder developer that builds spec is, you know, looked at like, wait a minute, how could you do that? Mm-hmm. The demand, the demand is just not there. And this look at the supplies problem we have right now. 
Well, right. their argument is is that if they build high enough quality in the highest and the best location, the triple A plus locations, that over time there will be demand for the space, and it's proved out so far. And that's mm-hmm. kind of their thought process. Yeah, the flight to quality. I wanted to dive a little deeper into ESG. I feel like most of the investment world, not just real estate, but across the entire spectrum of investment, there was like the Larry Fink moment. He's the CEO of BlackRock and I think right. asset manager. I think a year, maybe two years at this point ago, he said like all investments going forward will likely need to have an ESG component. And that kind of flipped the switch on everyone across the board to start you know, hyper-focusing on ESG and making sure that ESG is part of any investment strategy. But it seems like Skanska was on this boat, I don't know, decades ago. And it doesn't doesn't seem like they're greenwashing, which is kind of the term of yes, we have ESG and we, we care a lot about it, but it's more just a PR That's program. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did get the sense that he's very tied into ESG. The company's very tied into ESG and they've been doing it for wanted to get your thoughts on that. And if you agreed with my my analysis. It's a, it's a European philosophy. And I talked about that earlier because of land use issues. They look at things for sustainability long term, very mm-hmm. long. They also care about the environment because they have less land to work with. They are not in dirty industries as much like we are in this country. So they don't do steel building, steel, you know, manufacturing there. They don't do, they just don't have smokestack type industries that like yeah. this country has. And the mindset is different. They, you know, I don't know if they're quite as much of an industrial culture as, as we have been historically. So it's just, you know, it's a mindset and a belief in purity and clear, clean air and nature. And I mean, the Scandinavian countries are very much known as green and that way. So it's just, as I said, it's a cultural philosophical thing. And they saw a niche in that. And obviously people believe in it. Yeah. So, and it's going to continue to grow. And then. As far as employment goes and, and, you know, as far as the social piece, I mean, he said that he's been dealing with that since the first day he started at Skanska some mm-hmm. 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's been important to them. They treasure their employees very highly there. Yeah. And look Were you surprised how, how much European influence the, I guess, the American arm of the company has? How, no. If, yeah, you weren't? Yeah. Oh, no. Because I met the CFO. Skanska development. Mm-hmm. You no, know, it was actually before I met Rob. This is about eight, 10 years ago when Skanska first came to Washington. They had just, they were under construction with their first project. So one of my ULI mentees, Justin Bringer, was worked there and he, yeah. he took me to, he was the, pro, he was on that project. And so he, we walked the job and, and then this is the first job that the one was built with a church and after that, I said, so how is this finance, Justin? And he said, internally. I said, really? So I said, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I said, yeah. okay, I'm going to go sit down with your CFO. So <laughs> I did. He took the time. He knew it would be a waste of time. But he took the time to explain so that I understood and people that I dealt with understood. He said, John, we don't, we don't use third-party capital mm-hmm. at all. I said, okay. I have this the first developer I've ever talked to that doesn't. <laughs> so it was a learning experience. So that was why the whole idea that this bring this to the table because it is possible to do this. We did talk a little bit about Clark Construction, which of mm-hmm. course is the largest contractor in the region. 
And he worked there before Clark, at Clark. And I asked him about the co-investment strategy, which right now, Skanska doesn't do. Mm-hmm. Clark has been doing for years and years where they've provided guarantees and also co-investment in development deals for their developer clients sometimes, quite often, and actually build a business around it, Clark Realty Capital. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to ask him about that because I said, you know, Skanska has the leverage to do that. They could come in and yeah, be absolutely. financial partners with on their construction side. He said, well, instead of doing that, we decided to do development itself and just kind of not even do joint ventures with, the, with existing products. So that's another way of they just decided to do their own development and yeah. build their own standards. They seem to be very anal, I'll put it this way, about the finishes and the product. And that's why they don't want anybody else to develop their projects, right? which I thought was interesting. His uh, billboard answer was put down your phone and think. What, what were your thoughts on that? It's an excellent thought. And I mean, yeah. it's an excellent thing. When we're in such a rapid volume, rapid pace of information flow right now in this, in this and of course you and I are members of a group that thought is important and one thing that we were bringing to the iconic journey our group that we've set up is to stop and think a little more about what you're doing and and have perspective on your business and your career and it's important not to just keep looking at the next social media feed <laughs> yeah Think about what you're up to and what the long-term effects of what you're doing are mm-hmm. and make decisions. Take a little time to, to map things out. Look at what could, what are the worst things that could happen? What are the best things that happen? And kind of measure things a little bit more. Yeah. And you can tell from what Rob said about Skanska's process, they don't have to do a financial analysis. I mean, they have to do a financial for internal pr- presentation. They don't have to present to investors. So they take the time that normal developers would to do that, to focus on the details of their properties physically, the their employees, their relationship with their tenants, how what is the experience for the tenant as they come into the building? Those are more important than the financial structures for the property. So in that way, they're ahead of a lot of the market right now in that regard. Plus, he personally brings the hospitality perspective that he had learning, you know, when he worked at Benchmark, he talked about early on in his career. So he looks at, at the customer experiences. He said he walks through a building and if he sees something from his hospitality background, because he ran the, the uh, housekeeping side of a big hotel facility, he's really picky about it. Why isn't that cleaned up? Why is, you know, just really mm-hmm. uh, particular about things that other developers may not have the time to do as yeah. much of. I think that's all the questions I had. Did I miss anything you wanted to, to discuss? Do you have any questions for me? No. You said you've been in, I was going to ask you, you said you've been in a Skanska building. You know, of, I mean, based on what you've seen of them, what do mm-hmm. you see that are different from their buildings than other buildings that you've seen? If you if you if you can identify that, yeah, I've, I've definitely been in 1776 Wilson long before I even really got into real estate. But the fact that I remember the address and you know remember the building itself because I've been in you know probably hundreds by now, but there's not many addresses I remember from before my real estate career. So I think just that the fact alone that I still remember the address, remember the building, remember the garage, remember the 
experience from retail through the lobby up to the space I was working in. And this is, I was on this engagement as like an audit engagement. So I was only there for like two weeks. It's not like I worked mm-hmm. there for two years. It was, it was very brief in and out, but I still have that, you know, vivid memory of the quality of product. The tenant I was working for spoke very highly of the, the space they were in. So yeah, this was, you know, long before this podcast, long before I was in real estate and I still have memories of the building itself. So that just kind of proves out that it is quality. The tenants do care about the quality of the bin. It was just a good experience. So everything he said checked out <laughs> a decade ago. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. They, I, I went into their building and saw on, on Pennsylvania avenues where they just completed and where they're moving their headquarters. You know, it seems to me that they were at the cutting edge when they started doing this. Now, almost mm-hmm. the most, the entire development of business is catching up with them as far as the physical quality and the, the layout and the, the ambiance of the space, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll be interested to see what new pioneering things they're going to do and bring. One thing we didn't talk about is cold beam, which is the HVAC process he got into a lot of detail of, which is apparently not feasible in southern climates, mm-hmm. better in northern climates, which makes sense because they're from Scandinavia. Right. But it's much more efficient, somewhat upwards of 20% more efficient, which I thought was interesting. So anyway, thank you, Colin, and thank you, listeners. 